Blank check with Griffin and David. Blank check with Griffin and David. Don't know what to say or to expect. All you need to know is that the name of the show is Blank Check. What is it that you really like to do? Podcast. <laughs> Just one word. Podcasting. I th- yeah, I thought you were going to do a little monologue. Podcast. <laughs> I, I thought I wanted, was going to do a monologue. I want to do the opening clip when you see her doing the the first time Julie watches Julia on TV, but I couldn't find it. Boo! You know, you just, I thought you'd do something like that. Boo! Yeah, but Boo. I also thought it was funny just to say podcast because her voice <laughs> is so specific. You can get away with it. Right. But look, look, it's almost like we need another perspective. We need to set up a different opening quote in a different timeline. Uh, oh, you mean because there's like two... I cooked artichokes okay. with hollandaise sauce, which is melted podcast that's been whipped into a frenzy with egg yolks until it's died and gone to heaven. And let me say this. Is there anything better than podcasts? Think it over. Every time you taste something that's delicious beyond imagining and you say, what is in this? The answer is always going to be podcasts. The day there's a meteorite heading towards the earth and we have 30 days to live, I'm going to spend it eating podcasts. Here's my final words on the subject. You can never have too much podcast um Romley you're you you should talk right away I have a question for you yes I guess this movie is set in the early 2000s but like does she really need to explain what hollandaise sauce is I feel like people knew what hollandaise sauce was you would be surprised David I know it's just like because of the because of the 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 rise of brunch in the 21st you know I would have figured that would have brought it back I think most people know of hollandaise sauce but I don't think sure Many people know what's in hollandaise sauce. Okay. All right. Well, that's true. That's true. Right. She's breaking Griffin, down the ingredients. Did, did you know that hollandaise was uh, egg based? Absolutely not. They tricked me. I would never have eaten it. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, this is the thing. I got God, on board. Egg, I didn't know. The yeah. egg thing in this movie, Griffin, I thought of you. Yeah. G- guys, don't get ahead of ourselves. That's going to be okay. a 40 minute segment. Uh, right. Can I say ben, just be. Can I ask Ben one question? Yes. You can course. ask Ben any question. Technical. You um, can say Benny thing. It didn't be anything. Uh, on Audacity, it only goes up when I talk, right? That's what is supposed yeah, to happen? Yeah, that's what okay, we good. want. Okay, cool. But thank okay, you for right. checking in. I just want to be careful. Hey, as, no, it's great. Thank you. As you can tell from what just happened, which I insist we keep in the edit. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> we are live from Virtual Nice. We are Zooming. And, and a box of equipment was mailed to our special <laughs> guest this week. It was an exciting package. This is the world we live in now. Some of our guests have their own equipment. Some of them need to get sent a box of Ben. Hey, <laughs> a Ben it's, box. It's a Ben box. It had Ben all over it. That's for sure. Yeah, it was covered in dirt. Yeah. <laughs> we well, have to bury it first. That's just of a course. ritual. Mind. You have to bury it. Uh, it's almost like a subscription service. It could be a sponsor on our show. Buried box. Ben box, buried box. Um, <laughs> But here we are, virtual nice, and it's blank check with Griffin and David. I'm Griffin. That's right. I'm David. A clean shaven David. Uh, yeah, it's true. This just happened. I'm seeing bare cheeks for the first time in what feels like forever. I can't remember the last time you shaved this much. Probably a 
couple months would be my guess. Something it's, like something it's like a couple months. You look like a baby. I well, you know, this is how I looked for the first you know, I don't know, 27, 28 years of my life. I don't know. Like I didn't really grow a beard yeah. much until my late twenties. Yeah. And uh, guess what? I only slid in about 27, 28 years in my, my chronology. I know, my actually it, it overlaps. You're right. Because I started growing a beard after my, uh, after a big breakup, yes. which is right when That's I met right you. when we yes. met. Yep. You made a very important friendship. And you I went, did. I, did. I need to commemorate this life change with a face change. But that's not what this is about. This podcast is not about facial hair. It's a podcast about filmographies. Directors who have massive success early on in their careers and are given a series of blank checks to make whatever crazy passion products they want. Sometimes those checks clear and sometimes they bounce, baby. <laughs> I feel like my Julia is getting worse. You did her. Did you just do her once as an ad read? I feel like you've I, done her a couple I times. Did her at least once as an ad read. It was the ghost of Julia Child, and the joke was that a very subtle joke that she already sounds like a ghost. Right. Exactly. Boo! She's like, Ooh. Right. Uh, but yes, it's clearly diminished in time, uh, and that's relevant because today we've gotten to the final episode of our mini series on the films of Nora Ephron. It's called. You've got podcast. It should have been called You've Podcast. Whatever. But the sins of the right. past cannot be corrected. We can only atone. History is written by the winners. Yes. And and to some degree, this is a movie about that. Uh, it's called Julie and Julia. Our guest today, Romley Newman, longtime sister of me. <laughs> Third time guest of this podcast. Yes. I believe that's right. Three times. Entering the three-timers club. This, I will say it's nice this time because the past two times I've been wildly late and mm. have showed up in a real frenzy. Mm. So Sounds I'm familiar. Very, yeah. Wait, yes, I remember the so human family yeah. behaving Hold this on. way is very strange. I, I don't really understand. It's almost like we're the same. Yeah. Um, yeah, I feel like I vaguely remember that, Ram. You, yes, yeah. you were sort of stressed yeah, once, out both times. Once I had just had a um, a driving lesson, which was right. uh, oh. a little bit scary. Um, I'm a very anxious driver, and uh, Weird. And the for other someone time in the was, Newman family, I know anxiety <laughs> is just it's something I'm yeah. just starting to experience. It's crazy. People wonder why I'm terrified of cars. <laughs> who, who drives in the Newman family? Our father. Who, like and now Romilly okay, right. is the second one. I wow. have a license. I'm a terrible uh I'm a terrible driver. I say I'm a very good technical driver. My, I'm very smooth. Mm. Um, sure. my turns sure. are lovely. It's just a it's a lovely experience, but I get a lot of road anxiety. Yeah. So I will have a complete panic attack when I have to switch lanes. You're, you're exactly like my mother. This is that's my mother's a good driver, but right. If I'm like, oh, we actually have to get over to that lane yeah, no. in a mile because we're gonna have to exit there. It's like I'm saying to her, like this car is about to explode. Exactly. I, think <laughs> I was me out. driving with our mom the other day, trying to go to the grocery store, and it took us. I kid you not, two hours to get there because I kept taking the wrong exits because I was too scared to switch lanes. I was mm -hmm. always in the right, right lane, and I would always exit. Um, it was a, it was a real experience. You would be a good driver in like Cormac McCarthy's The Road, like in a world where the <laughs> roads are open and no one else is driving. 
you could handle sure. everything well as you, if you worked on your own pace you didn't have to coordinate with other people moving exactly. in fast vehicles I'm a great yeah. driver if there are no other cars I will say I remember I have one childhood memory of my mother driving she very briefly lived in LA but other than that she spent most of her life either in Paris or New York where there are public transit systems so she knew how to drive from when she lived in LA and always talked about how bad she was at it and there was one time where for some reason she had to drive my my brother and I and my only memory is her being on train tracks trying to figure out how to back up as we heard the train starting <laughs> oh to approach God. in the distance. Truly, truly. Like, it wasn't like an immediate threat, but there was like the ding, ding, dinging happening. <laughs> oh, Jesus. And I think that is truly the last time she ever got behind the wheel of a car. My Actually, I have one, a more recent story. I was probably about 10 years old. And I was going to a sleepover at a friend's house that was 10 minutes away. And I begged her to drive me. Really? So, so it was a whole thing. I didn't and know this happened. By the way, our mom is very short. She's my height. but Tiny lady. She was like, you know, barely could see above the wheel. And she's a small, right. Short she's woman. a petite woman. And, uh, we're like three minutes in and I'm like, wow, this is going really well. I'm sitting in the back seat. I'm like, I'm going to get to the friend's house. It's going to be great. And all of a sudden we hear a cop car behind us. They pull her over. The guy comes out of the car and says, ma'am, I just want to tell you driving too slow is just as dangerous as driving too fast. That's so funny. I'm going to have to escort you to where you're going because there wow. are 15 cars behind you. <laughs> oh my gosh. Like, she was driving so slow. They were like, we cannot allow this, this to continue for a This is how our family is with driving. And my father's the opposite. Like my father, it's like the car becomes an extension of his jittery body. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He'll be switching lanes back and forth with no signals, yeah. like in and out. I was always my my mom. Like we said, my mom is sort of she's a fine driver, but she is she's anxious about changing lanes. She hates a merge. She's really afraid of merging onto highways like things like that. You know, she gets overly anxious about these things. So I always assumed, oh, that's what I'll be like as a driver. And then mm. I wasn't at all like I, I am a that's completely good. different driver from her. Well, but but David, that's also it, it's, it's such a different scenario with your mother because you lived your entire life in London. She was driving on the opposite side of the road. You did the you bit didn't right. Even good job. Into New York. I finally fucking got it. As right. you remember, at the beginning of this miniseries, we established an inverted bit Romilly in which now my memory is flipped to thinking David only lived in London and never <laughs> New York. And after setting it up, I have fucked it up in every episode following. But I finally you, landed you it. it. A little bit of closure on the end of the miniseries. But yes, he is Uptown David. Right. I actually, as you said, uh, grew up in London. And uh, although my early years were in New York City. Um, but I did learn to drive. What? Thank you. I did learn to drive in England. So yes, wow. I learned on the other side of the road and all that. Yeah. And I learned on a stick because you have to in England. Uh, yeah. Basically have to. Bond yeah. That's my number one fear. Well, it's not my number one fear because I wouldn't have to drive in England, but I, I want to move to London. And, and I just feel like I just got my driver's license and it's this newfound well, congratulations. freedom. Well, not not to. I honestly, I got it six months ago, but it feels like I just got it because I've driven twice. Yeah. 
Um, right. But having to, l- I could never learn how to drive on the opposite side of the road. Um, it's weird. Uh, yeah. I feel like I had to basically just forget it. Yeah. I feel and like I would immediately have to just not be a driver. It's, it's yeah. worth saying just in terms of, uh, how, how much the entire, uh, world has flipped on its head. Uh, you were explicitly trying to move to London at the beginning of this year. You were trying to do a reverse Sims bits aside. Wow. And, I was. Yeah. And when we were scheduling this episode originally in my mind, it was like, because we planned several miniseries ahead very often. So we knew we'd be doing this. We knew roughly when the episode would record. And I remember thinking like, is this going to have to be our second ever Zoom record because Romley will wow. be in a different country? Or will we have to time it back to like her coming back to visit or something? And I remember then, talking to you about that. Right. Then the entire world flipped on its head and you yeah. are in fact now our like 15th consecutive Zoom record. Yeah, no, I, I, there are so many things I've sent so many emails, which now, um, look ridiculous being like, oh, sorry, I can't do that thing in August. I will be in London. Yeah. You at the beginning right. of this year, were like trying to sort out passport stuff and like find yeah. a job to work in London. Yeah. Yeah. But I will say I've never wanted to move to London more. <laughs> it's a lovely city. Where would you want to live in London? I don't know. I mean, I'm trying to figure out now my desires are very different now than they were before. Like really? Yeah. Yeah. You feel like your perspective on the world has changed in the last four months? Just, just a little bit. I don't know. That's weird. But five months ago, I was like, I'm going to go there. I'm going to get a job. I'm going to become the next Nigella Lawson. Hopefully fingers crossed. Like I had this whole master plan and now I touch everything, suck up people's breath. (laughs) Right. Right. I'll casually be near people. It'll be great. Yes. And now I really just, if I, can go, hopefully, uh, I would kind of just like to either work in a restaurant or go to cooking school and just like really ride it out. Just Your, your idea was kind of to do a little bit of the Julia Child thing, like like to do like an intensive enroll and spend like six months at least really, really just studying food. Yeah. But now it's a little more like I'll do anything now. Yeah. I, I just realized France must be having such a tough time coping with Corona because of the double cheek kissing. <laughs> sure. All, all that's out. Like we think in America out. about like our loss of like, oh, you can't shake hands anymore. It's like France. They were hugging. They couldn't stop kissing each other all over the faces. In England, it's one kiss. But in yeah. mainland Europe, you do. You do, too. Right. And France was like, hold my wine. I bet they're still doing it. When, yeah, they probably are. With masks. Maniacs. I mean, I, uh, when I remember when I was a teenager or even younger, like in I get England, no comedy like, points for hold my wine. I'm sorry to go back on that this. That was funny. I'm sorry. <laughs> I was no trying to say something. It wasn't laugh out loud funny, Chris. That's why I asked for a point. That's oh when the point God. comes into play. When it's not laugh out loud funny, but you want to respect the craft. Have Throw a me point. a point. Okay, you get yes. two good ones. I just remember, and now this this is the reason I didn't do that, because now this point is totally lost, but the cheek kiss, the single cheek kiss at the British mm. greeting, I would watch adults do that and be like, there's some rule to this that I don't understand. Like, there's some way that they know exactly how to do it. Oh, and yeah. like, someone's going to have to teach me this because yes. this is clearly a very <laughs> grown up thing. Right. No, every time anyway. I, I see a French person, they try to do that with me. It uh, And they're always trying to do it with me. Just attack. They're always trying kisses. to grab you, kiss you. 
the worst thing I've ever done. Not the worst thing I've ever done, but I've uh, accidentally kissed someone people on the right lips. In the mouth. Yes, yeah. I've done the exact yeah. same thing. <laughs> sure. Because it's sure. like the equivalent of being in a hallway and then you like try to sync up where like, oh, I'm going to go one way, you'll go the other way. And then you this both go the This is what I feared way. when That's I was a kid. Thing. I was like, I'm going to hit I'm going to hit the wrong spot. I'm going to get him in the nose. Absolutely. I have kissed so many of my mother's friends on the yes. lips by accident. Mm-hmm. Because they're fucking horny as shit, these French people. <laughs> A whole country of Sims trying to smooch all the time. <laughs> I do love it. Um, but yeah, Fran- well, Rom, I see you, you know, I see you near my old stomping grounds. I see you in like South End Green, just, wow. you know, going to the bookstores, going to the restaurants. I, I can just imagine it. I love, I, I, I mean, most people say to me when I tell them that I want to move to London, they're like, oh, but there's nowhere with worse food than London. Oh, that's and, bullshit. Uh, it's bullshit. There are actually really, really, really good restaurants in London. Um, and also, I love the uh, the drinking culture, obviously. <laughs> they do They do love to drink. They need yeah. to drink to have any kind of human interaction. And right. I love and them for pubs. that. Yeah. They've already opened the pubs. They need yeah. to. It's, it's, they it's, need it's, to. It's a part of life. It's it's that it's how they have conversations about things that aren't the weather. I know this is I've very always, grossly stereotypical of me, but it's true. This is like mildly depressing, but I've always I'm like that. I guess it's because our mom like is like that as well. Although she doesn't <laughs> drink that much, but um, I definitely need alcohol to loosen up. Um mm. And so, yeah, when I go there, I'm just like right on the same page. And that's probably when I realized that I wanted to live there. When I was like, we all would meet for dinner and be really uptight. And then 30 minutes right. later, like right. laughing and having the time of our lives. It, yeah. it is no. funny how COVID has turned now at, that things are starting to reopen most American cities into something more closely approximating British pub culture, where it's all these like bars spilling out into the street with people drinking and yelling loudly. Like that used to be something that did not happen. And now it's every bar. Yeah. But you know, this movie's not set in London. No, it's not set in Queens and in Paris. Long Island city, this mystical land. It's a period piece about the first settlers in Queens. <laughs> <laughs> it is funny that the character dared cross the East River and not yes. to Brooklyn. They're they're losing their minds at the idea of like they might as well be moving to like a mountain in the top of the Himalayas. Well, it's just like they're moving to Rochelle Ghoul's lair in Batman if Begins. You ever, if you ever watched the pilot episode of Will and Grace, which I believe aired in 1998, I'm sure the, it holds up perfectly. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> uh, I believe the premise is partly that. It may be the second. It's a very early episode is that uh, I think either will or grace. I believe grace mm. is going to move. Yeah, maybe it's will who who can say with okay. those two uh, is going to move to the borough hall stop on, you know, in Brooklyn Heights. Insane. I mean, <laughs> and the other one is like, I'll never see you. This is a fucking outrage. Like you yeah. can't move there. It's like the tropics. Like, you know, how, how will I even get there? You want me to go one express stop into Brooklyn? <laughs> yeah. Where do they live? Downtown? Where where does it No, they live on the Upper West Side, I oh, think. I, right. I feel like all those like, like you know, Mad About You. Yes. Uh, you know, I guess Friends yes. was a little different. Friends they lived in the village, but mostly, you know, Seinfeld, Mad About You, um uh Will and Grace, they're all on the Upper wait, West Side. Wait a second, how would you know that? I got I'm uptown Davy <sighs> Sims, man, 89th in what? Amsterdam. Stand clear of the closing door, oh, please. Man. Um, all right. That's yes. enough of that. 
This movie, this movie, Julie and Julia, is about Paris and about New York. And it does feel like such a relic of a different film industry that you can tell they actually shot in both locations. Like there's 100%. certainly a fair amount of, of uh, I, I'd say, um, uh, soundstage in this movie. Yeah, but now they would be like, you get one day in Paris, maybe. Right. There's, there's a good amount of both. It, it gives you a lot of production cool. value. I think it's a thing we've talked about a lot with Nora is like how much this type of comedy thrives on strong locations as much as it strives on like chemistry between actors. I mean, going back to Harry met Sally, you know, it's kind of a kind of crucial for all her hits. This is my life sleepless, you know, um, even the ones that don't work, like have a sense of place, like mixed nuts really feels like a real sense of like, you know, the, this sort of, uh, the Midwest. Yeah. Yeah. Baron Americana. But I feel like she's at her best where it's a place she understands. And that's why the, the, you know, the New York movies obviously work Yeah, and sleepless in Seattle, I guess. Well, that's a little different, but I mean, I guess she really knew her way around a a houseboat. Yeah. Um, Rombly, uh, you, you should do a little table setting here because this is, this is one of the most influential movies of your entire life. Yes. Um, upon rewatching it, I realized how many things I actually learned from this movie. Um, I'd also say just hearing you talk on this podcast today, I'm realizing that you have a certain Julia Child lilt in your voice that comes out sometimes. And I wonder. Yeah, I have I have a very weird voice and a lot of my friends make fun of me for occasionally having a transatlantic accent. But sometimes you like go into this like slightly yes. higher. Yeah. And there's a video of me from when I was younger on a cooking show and it is full Julia Child. And like no one stopped me and said like, Romley, this is not how you talk. Maybe well, they probably it thought it was it, adorable. They were probably like, yes, it's, no. it's like a little Julia Child. But it's your but version like, of like the Ryan Gosling fake Brooklyn accent. Like it's just become yes. your voice now. Yeah. Yes. And I'm like, you put the tarragon in the right, stew. Right. You do that. And yes. Yes. I do that all the time. And I, I don't even notice anymore, but it's definitely something that I've picked up. This yeah. movie has been incredibly um, influential. And uh, I, I actually, before I saw this movie, I didn't know that much about Julia Child. And so this was kind of my introduction to Julia Child, to blogging, to that level of cooking, all of it. Did you yeah. see it in theaters? Did you you oh, saw it on release? David, David. I, I assumed. I just wanted to make sure. That's a foolish question, David. Because you like, must have been, if I can like do the math, you were out. like 11 or 12 years she was old. 11. Yeah. 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 She, she lined up. She was sleeping outside the theater, like before the release of Phantom Menace. She set up a tent. She was waiting Griffin, for the right. box office to open for two They assumed weeks. she was there for Twilight or whatever. And she was right. like, no, no, baby. It's Julie and Julia for up. me. Yeah. Did I see this with you, Griffin? No, I saw this separate from you, I want to say. I think you probably saw it with our mother. Yeah, and I was. I remember I was really, really hungry after. And I like, my brain would not stop working. Like I was up all night, just like the wheels were turning. I was hungry. I was thinking about everything. I was just, it was a real turning point in my 11 year old life. Well, I have a very specific memory. You, you had already been cooking for a number of years at this point. And as, as you revealed to me only fairly recently, the reason you first got into food 
is because our mother wouldn't let you watch the Disney Channel because she thought it was shitty. And you wanted to watch High School Musical and all the things that your friends watched so you could relate to them. And Food Network used to be one channel away from Disney Channel on the Time Warner cable box in New York. Disney Channel was 49 and Food Network was 50. So Food Network was your cover. Like Food Network was the history book you placed on the outside of Mad Magazine so that when our mom came in the room, you could switch back to Food Network and act like you were just really into Food Network now. And then it seeped in and you ended up getting really into food. Yes. And I remember I was really, I thought it was very embarrassing that I watched the Food Network And once I was talking to a friend and she was like, oh, you know, sometimes kind of weird, but I watch the Food Network. And I was like, what? You watch the Food Network? And it was all of a sudden this girl was like my favorite person because she also watched the Food Network. But it really was something I kept secret because I thought it was like, oh, that's really boring. That's what moms watch. Like, I shouldn't tell people. And obviously I would like very... Uh, diligently switch back to Disney Channel because I needed to like be able to quote movies to my friends. Of course. You had to know the lyrics to uh, yeah. Breaking Free. Is that the name of yes. the song? We're breaking free. Yeah, Soaring, I think so. Soaring, yeah. flying, there's lots of heaven yeah, we can achieve. Because we're breaking free. Um, uh, I got to brush up on my high school musical. I have this very specific memory of uh, uh, showing you the Julie and Julia trailer when it went up online. Because you were already so in the tank for Meryl. Obviously, your other big canonical movie, uh, uh, previous guest appearance, Devil Wears Prada, had come out a couple years earlier. That was your favorite film. Uh, And Mamma Mia had also come out. So Meryl was like your number one. You were also really into Amy Adams. Those were like two people who you were seeing all of their movies. And I was like, oh, there's a new Meryl Streep, Amy Adams movie with a trailer. It's about food. You should watch it. And we sat there and you watched the trailer like in dead silence. And then I said, you know, it's a real story. And you went, yeah, Julia Child, I know she's a real person. Like very condescendingly. And I was like, no, but the other part's a true story too. And your eyes opened and you were like, what do you mean? And I was like, it's a true story. This woman wrote a blog. And then you were like, and then what happened? And then I was like, and then it got popular. And you were like, and then what happened? I was like, and that turned to a book. You were like, and then what happened? And I was like, and then they option the book and they turn into a movie and Amy Adams is playing her. And, and you here, went, oh, here it is. Right. Oh, interesting. And you walked away and half an hour later, you walked back to the computer I was sitting at and you went, I'm thinking I should maybe start a blog. <laughs> it was that direct. And you started a blog like the next day before the movie had even come out. Is your blog still online? Yeah. Yeah. It's because uh, you took down girl. most of the videos, right? Yeah. That's unfortunate. The videos are gone. The videos were very Julia Child esque. Um, but the posts are still there, and I actually tried to do a Julie Julia thing where I would cook the recipes from mm-hmm. Julia Child's book, and I, like three posts in, I'm like, I just can't do this. Yeah, no. and but but the posts are absolutely ridiculous. Well, Rereading them, I mean, Angela's absolutely going to retweet your blog. Wait, wait, wait what's the blog? Now I want to look at it. Little girl, is, in uh, little girl in the kitchen. Little girl in the kitchen. Blogspot.com. Of course. Um, oh man, if anyone ever found my blog spots, boy, oh boy. Yeah, it's it's uh it's embarrassing in a way it's that it's, it's only embarrassing. No, like people who read it are like, this is unbelievable. No one's like, oh God, that's embarrassing. But uh I was very precocious. I still am, but I was very precocious. You but you had Making a YouTube these- channel too where I used to film the videos with a flip camera. 
in our New York City kitchen, which was literally a hallway. Like, uh, the, the apartment we grew up in was so poorly laid out because the building was originally a hotel. So the kitchens were, like, not designed for full use. Uh, and I would I would film you in there, and you would have to wear uh, our mom's high heels in order to reach the kitchen to be able to cook. And then when you were in high school, you got self-conscious and you deleted all the videos, which is a big problem. Yeah, yeah. um, Someone was like, I found your videos. And like immediately that night I went and permanently deleted all of them. Everything, yeah. Yeah. There was the the line we always used to make fun of, though. Make fun of. The line we always used to quote, which was so good, was the one where you were teaching risotto. And you said, parents, don't be afraid to feed your kids risotto. Risotto is not scary. I like risotto, although I do have a pretty advanced palate. <laughs> wow. But it was that you were always like talking to parents about how to feed their kids better, being like, look, these kids. I know. I would always talk as if I was not a child. Right. Like, yes. As if you are like another like mom in the kitchen being like, you know, every day I'm trying to find something to put in front of them. I swear to God, though, Romley would do that when she came home from preschool. She'd be like, oh, my God, these kids at school are so crazy. I, uh, risotto, risotto. That's how you say it in this country, correct? Yes. Because that is the one word I have never been able to shake my English upbringing. I say risotto. risotto? Wow. And, and weird. I say it involuntarily and people laugh at me. And even when I'm like, I'm going to say the word and I'm like, in America, they definitely say risotto. I still usually have to be like, risotto right like i have you to like your head ask, at the last even though second yes. someone just like with you guys you had just said it and i had already forgotten because i'm like it's not how you say you say risotto um and uh we've have we never talked about this on the podcast before it's the one that i is you know when i was an american kid living in england there were words that i would say that i couldn't like erase like usually Aluminium. i try to just say the i would say aluminum and they would mock me i would say yeah. eraser and they would mock me like instead of they were rubber, mostly instead of rubber. Yeah. You mostly, I would just say the English words cause I didn't want to deal with the hassle of them, them being amused. Mm. But there were a few where I just could not get on board vitamin. Like there were just somewhere I'm like, I, I can't, I can't say it. And now it's the other way. I have That's to say so weird. the hassle of them being amused. I cannot imagine someone getting that much enjoyment out of the idea that you grew up in a different place than where you currently live. You just, you that cannot imagine so juvenile like, for English school children going to make like, that into a sport. Yeah. yeah. God, I, I'm so sorry people treated you that way. It's also amazing how many times I said eraser in my teen years versus post college. You know what I mean? Like, like how often do I say eraser anymore? Was the Schwarzenegger movie called Rubber in the UK? Uh, no, it was called Eraser. Did David Lynch make Rubberhead? <laughs> all right, all right, good job. I could do this all day. So yes, this was a yes, this was a very influential movie for you. By the time it came out, you were already doing these things. You were doing your YouTube videos, you were doing your blog. Um and and yeah, and then and then you kind of went Julia Child crazy after this. But your Meryl yes. fandom was already in full swing. Your Adams fandom was already in full swing. Yes. When I watched it originally, obviously my takeaway was all this amazing food, the blogging. And now my real takeaway is this is a movie about nice relationships. 
Mm-hmm. Men it's a being movie, nice. Uh, yes. It's that and but it's also a movie about like I mean this maybe is too hot to take but like trying to like return to normalcy and domesticity after a terrible thing. Yep. Yes. You know, after the yes. war and after 9/11. Like I just completely erased in my brain that this was a post 9/11 movie that opens Pointedly. basically with a shot of Ground Zero. Yeah. It really is a movie about husbands being supportive yes. and loving and just all, I mean, it's, it's like, you know, it's the opposite of Dove Wars Prada. I keep like when I yes. was watching it last night, I kept waiting for the moment where um, Amy Adams husband was going to be like, maybe you should stop this blog, like pay more attention to me. And it just never happens. He's always lovely and supportive. Right, and then Stanley Tucci is number one husband goal ever, like in this movie, and, in the entire he, world. This, this is the most the the, the the most raw sexually magnetic performance ever given. Like he is so <laughs> incredibly hot. I mean, like we've David been building to this when, performance. When he was watching, right, right. This whole podcast, ever since yeah. Ben said "Touch of the Tooch," every time we get a we've touch been of the building tooch. to this yes. performance. <laughs> this was the one where we're like, "Why isn't he in every single film?" And of course, the weird yeah. irony that this was the year he got an Oscar nomination and it was for the wrong movie. It's so right. wild. He only has the one nomination. It is so pointedly wrong. It feels like they gave it to him because everyone advanced sound said like, oh, that sounds like an Oscar role. And he was so overdue that even when people saw the movie and the whole thing was a catastrophe, they still gave him the nomination. As you always cite, there's the moment in that Oscar ceremony where they play the yeah. clip from he the winces. lovely bones. And when they cut back to him in the audience, he winces having watched yeah. the clip. He's he gives like, a far superior performance the same year. He should have gotten the nomination for both this and devil wears Prada. Like the two yes. Merrill movies, he should have been his slam dunk career nominations. Yes. And he should have gotten the nomination for spotlight. Uh, spot. Yeah, but the thing about spotlight is you can at least say like, well, there are yes. so many good performances yes, in that movie. That's really tough. But you um, also but, know uh, that I think yeah. he's the best one in that movie. I, it's, it's so funny that you think that. And I think that Michael Keaton is the best I performance know. given We're that flipped. you he's your favorite actor. Yes. <laughs> but yes, Tucci, incredible. Ram is right. This movie, like those, those relationships are at the core, you know, of both stories, like as much as the food and the sort of falling in love. But also then... They're like they're movies about like you know the sort of hassle of female entrepreneurship, right? In both yeah. cases, there's a lot of brilliant stuff going on in this movie that I just like ignored when I yeah. when I saw it. I had the same take as everyone else, which is like the Julia Child stuff is pretty great. Amy Adams with her blog, like get over it, lady. And I saw this in 2009, and I feel like everyone had a lot of people had the same reaction. I'm sure you can confirm, Griff, where people are like. Her life's fine. Like, what's she so stressed out about? Yes. Like, and now you watch this movie and you're like, this is a movie about what has happened to this generation, basically. That's, thank you. Okay, we'll we'll get to this. I think that's a big part of it. And I also think you need the contrast because she's making a larger point about how career arcs are different right now. Uh, and, and also in how we change how a writer develops. Right. Yes, yeah, all that sort of right. stuff. I think all that stuff is like, much like you've got mail, it seems insane that she was that prescient. Like right, that considering she was that, that ahead of the curve. Yeah. She was in her 60s, uh, like yeah. late 60s when she makes this movie. It's like, it is crazy that this is a weirdly finger on pulse movie in some ways, considering totally. that. Yeah. 
Yeah. And at the time, I think people were like, why is she making a movie in which this blogger is put up on the same level as Julia Child? And that's what pissed a lot of people off. But in reality, it's like she's not trying to put them on the same level. She's not trying to say their experiences are equal. She's trying to show a, a study in contrast between the two things. If um, she wanted them on the same level, there would not be a scene in the movie where she is told that Julia Child probably thinks her blog exactly, is exactly. bullshit. Thank you. Thank you. And we'll I, get there. I, and love, we'll get there. I love that. That's the, a matter. It's very important. You have to include it. It's but like it would have been easy for them not to. But I was looking at the AV Club review, which gave this movie a C. By and large, this movie got good reviews. Even the people who were like, "Eh, the Meryl stuff's much better." It got like B reviews. Like it got you know, it got a lot of like, "Yeah, it's pretty good." It's a late summer charmer. It's fine. Right. Right. Uh, You know, and Meryl got the nomination, but it wasn't really in the conversation for anything else, even though it should have been arguably. Uh, I, I mean, I think this absolutely should have gotten adapted screenplay supporting actor uh, mm. and then, you know, score and costume, I would argue. But anyway, um, the, the AV club review is like really angry at the inclusion of the Amy Adams stuff. They're like, they botch what could be a very good Julia child biopic. And right. if, Nora Ephron wanted to make a Julia Child biopic. She would have made a Julia Child biopic. It's not like that opportunity didn't exist for her. That book had existed for so long. There were so many accounts of her life. This is very specifically the story she wanted to tell. It's a very clever work of adaptation because you're taking two entirely different books and trying to make a greater point by putting them side by side. Well, also, like, imagine the Julia Child biopic version of this movie, which because this movie's two hours long. So the Julia yeah. Child part, let's say, is an hour of it. It's yeah. probably a little more. I feel like it's a little heavier on her. But like, you know, let's say it's an hour. You can attack another 45 minutes like this tells the yes. story just fine. Like, Absolutely. I guess you yeah. attack on the sort of like and then she was a TV star. That part of it. But, but David, like, what's the story yeah. they're telling? This is another thing. We cover biopics on this podcast. I feel like you and I are in agreement that a good biopic yeah. isn't actually a biopic. It is a movie featuring a real person as the lead character. Because biopics uh-huh. so often feel the need to go from birth to death. And cover right. the, birth, the birth to death biopic is almost impossible to pull off. Like, it's also usually just not it's how dramatic to stories the... are told. Right. Dramatic right. stories are about someone going through a specific period of their life or an incident or something like that. You know, Their life mm-hmm. through one prism, through one theme, through one set period of time. This movie is very specifically about two women on the exact same journey, which is how do you get to writing your first book, which is such a Nora thing. It's how do you figure out what your voice is as a writer? And it's also how do you figure out your life experience and how to translate that into writing? What do you have to say that no one else can say? Or what can you say differently than anyone else can? That is so fucking Efron, you know? For someone whose career was being a writer in so many different mediums, you know, establishing different voices, autobiographical, applying her interests to other people's stories, adapting other people's works, writing fictional things. I mean, she had done so much, but you also talk about the fact that like her big breakthrough is heartburn, which really propels her to the next level. And I, I think about this movie in much the same way I think about like Prairie Home Companion, where it's a mm. perfect final film not because it's their best movie, but it is such a great final statement on their career and their life in terms of how many of the pet themes it comments on and what kind of perspective it has on them. And if you go like Heartburn's the beginning, it's entirely autobiographical. It's Nora Ephron trying to figure out 
how to turn her suffering into a story, which she then does in a book and then in a movie, right? Um, sure. With Meryl Streep as her avatar, who she never works with again. So good was before or after. Uh, it's a good question. Actually. She so never directs, before. right, until before. this. So there's a perfect mm-hmm. full circle thing on that, right? That her career starts with Meryl, writing for Meryl, ends with her directing Meryl. But also yeah. that heartburn is all about her disastrous second marriage, coming off of a bad first marriage. And for the last 20 years of her life, she was in a really good marriage. She talks right. about that she finally found the peace with like a supportive husband who wasn't competitive, who had his own career and didn't feel threatened by her and like was loving. And this is very much, as you said, Romilly, her like retort to, I want to make a movie that shows that you can have a good marriage. That, you know, so often female driven comedies are either romantic comedies where the romance getting to the wedding, whatever it is, is the end goal, or it's a female career driven comedy in which the conflict usually comes from the man being threatened by how much she's focusing on her career. Right. It's a movie about having a balanced life. Right. Right. And it's also about like, Men don't have to be assholes. Men don't have to be no. threatened by a woman being successful. It is. It's it's sad how crazy it is, but it is crazy to watch a movie where husbands are like, oh, if that's what you want to do, then you should do it. And yes. I'll support you no matter what. And they do support them no matter what. I mean, it's crazy that that's wild, but it is. Movies so yes. often have to make the husband feel threatened and emasculated. And this movie is just like, you know, and, and Stanley Tucci is like totally okay with his like slight femininity. I feel like, you know, his character has a total feminine side and like that's why it works. Well, that's what makes him God tier. And it's also why it's such smart casting to carry him over from Devil Wears Prada, both because, you know, he and Meryl work well together. But yes. Well, there's and there's the scene where they're like, are you a homosexual? And he's like, <laughs> like, like the way he rolls his eyes where he's right. like, that's. You guys just don't get it. <laughs> you think I haven't heard yeah. this before? Right. Right. Yeah. But, you know, like, obviously, Tucci, huge standout, important God tier. Messina is doing such quietly stellar oh, work. Messina yeah. is great in this movie. So I mean, as you said, Ron, he is like, or whatever, his character is the good version of the Devil Wears Prada. Because they even character. like look a little alike. Yeah, I don't know. Like they, do. they have like similar vibes. And w- just like starting this movie, I forgot if he was an asshole or not. Obviously, my like I immediately went to oh, I bet he feels threatened by her. And it, he's just like lovely without it being overbearing. He's just like consistently supportive and loving. And it's just like it just seems like a very healthy relationship. And their big fight is entirely reasonable. Yeah. It's it's like an actual couple fight as opposed to like the insane shit that happens in rom-coms. And then know? he comes back and it's just yeah. like, it's it's good. It's good yes. again. Uh, I also, I feel like, I mean, you saying that you forgot it. I feel like over the last bunch of months as we've been covering these movies and, and even when I was telling people we were going to cover Nora Ephron and like, you know, would, would share like opinions on movies with people, they would always say like, the, the thing, David, that you were saying that most people say of just like, oh, but the Julia side is so much better than the Julie side. And right. I hate all that shit with the husband being an asshole. And it's literally that like people in their minds, I think, remember his character being Adrian Grenier because yeah. they, they can't imagine that this type of movie wouldn't have that be the central conflict. Like people correct it into their heads to the worst version of it yeah. because it still seems progressive that 11 years ago she made a movie where that wasn't the conflict. 
the conflict is finding your voice as a writer. Yeah. Yes, it is. is. And finding or having the confidence in yourself as a woman, uh, you know, to that you are like whatever that you what you have to offer is of value. Yeah. You know what I mean? Find your thing and get good at it and, and feel proud about it. Yeah. Right. Um. And Sorry, Chris Messina yes. does not actually look like Adrian Grenade. I don't know what he's talking about. They have similar uh, coloring. They, they have similar coloring and like, I don't know. It's just like the apartments feel similar. They're kind yes. of small it's, it, and dark. I just dark. kind of m- melded them together and thought of them as one yeah. character. Yeah. They both have kind of like short King energy. I actually don't know how tall Adrian <laughs> Grenier is. Let's find Messina out. is short though, right? Messina is yeah, apparently Grenier is listed at five ten, so you know maybe knocking it shut that Messina is definitely two. short. Yeah, he, right. Messina is listed at five nine, which means he's five two. I um, also, but, I mean, Messina I just, especially has yes. short king energy. Like, I also just think Messina is so good at this type of role, which is so hard to play. Of just like nice, decent guy. We always talk about that. Yeah. That's like the hardest thing to play when there's nothing dramatic to hang on to and it's clear from a lot of the picks that messina makes that he likes playing weird fucked up oddball people like live by night and like birds of prey he loves playing like fucking scumbags but it speaks to his skill set that he also is very good at playing these types of fully normal support roles without feeling like he's mailing it in what other movies Okay, the, thank you, Romley. Exactly. Yes. yes. Like, where okay, is he? Yeah. Because this is when he is starting to just pop up all the time. He Thinking obviously, as we, right. Well, as we noted, he is in You've Got Mail. Yes. Uh, he plays a salesman at uh, Fox Books. You know. Oh who, yeah, who yeah, 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 yeah. He's got one scene, um, but it's nice to see right. him like have this quiet arc of going from a day player right. to, you know, key supporting character. Yeah. In the uh, uh, and then. You know, I feel like he'd done like he'd done, you know, mostly like arty indie 2000s movies. Yeah. And then like right now, yes, Vicky Cristina Barcelona, Away We Go, right. uh, Greenberg, Can a Pool Overflow? Yes, a pool can overflow. These are all his normal uh, guy roles. You know, I run Abby right. He's was popping sort of up supporting actor. Yeah. yeah. Wait, yes, yes, yeah. Right. Because that was him like as like romantic lead for the first time. And it was like a small kind of indie hit. But I feel like that functioned as his audition reel for other people to start giving him bigger roles. Can a pool overflow? Yes, a pool can overflow. That's my favorite bit of Green Greenberg. Good movie. Ehrlich turned me on to that, to that specific bit. He used to say it to me all the time. But yes, he's he's so good. And yeah, he's a dude who like started acting in the 90s. He's in Rounders. Like he's of the generation of like Affleck and Damon. It took longer for him to pop. But part of that is that he is just such a good support dude. Celeste and Jesse ever. I'm looking at some of these other things. Ruby he, Sparks. he also, he got stuck on Mindy project. No offense. I'm sure he right. enjoyed being on it. And like, you know, it's nice to be on a TV show, blah, blah, blah. But you know what I mean? Like he was kind of like, you know, I feel like that probably took up a lot and of that's his time. Absolutely. This type of role. He's very much playing yeah. this part on the Mindy project. Yeah. He, well, he's a little more of a like, Hey, well, I'm a guy. I got a trip on my shoulder about it. You know, like he's got a little more of that energy in it, but definitely. Yes. In terms of his function within the story. I mean to say, yes, I just feel like you compare him to the Ruffalo rom-com roles, right? When he did his run where he got stuck in sort of rom-com purgatory and Ruffalo, you could always tell was not super engaged being in those movies. You know, but he could do it right. He'll, he you could know, do yeah. it. Yeah. But but it always felt like, man, Ruffalo's not punching at full weight. 
Whereas when, when I see Messina in these roles, I feel like he's using his full intelligence as an actor, even though you can tell he prefers to do the weirder shit. Right. And he's just very egoless. He just like wants to support, you know, he's like yeah. a company player. He's so good. He really, so. it's, it's a great performance. Now, can we talk uh, a little like Adam's context? I mean, Streep, I feel like we've covered a lot of, and this is just very much her being in her like run of box office dominance. Right. This, this is sandwiched in between Devil Wears Prada yeah. and It's Complicated, both of which we've talked about. But this and is when she's had, yes, but I'm saying those two movies we've covered. She really, she does such a, such a good job at this. It's really amazing how spot on this performance is. It's also fascinating how much she threads the needle of this is the first time in her career, this run from like 2006 uh, to 2016, roughly or whatever, where she like becomes a box office star for the first time. She makes very mainstream movies and she establishes like a Meryl Streep movie star persona, which I feel like prior to that, her persona was she's a chameleon. She just disappears. She does the the accents. And of course right. she's still in that, but like everything you're saying is accurate. I just wanted to note that when I tweeted about this movie, some people were in my mentions being like, I mean, mostly you see the people saying more like, ah, the Amy Adams parts kind of leaden. Yeah. But like some people were saying like, ah, oh, Meryl's over the top. Like no. that's, and I'm like, have you seen Julia yeah. child? Excuse me. That's the thing. I think it's right. like just the right level. Absolutely. Because that's exactly how Julia Child acted. Julia Child was over the top. That was her personality. Yeah. And she's almost doing the Sean Connery thing too, where it's like people came because they want to see a Sean Connery movie. Don't get too yeah, far right. away from Sean Connery. Yeah, let's but not get too doing, subtle, Meryl. Right. right. She's doing the voice, but she's also like bringing in a lot of like the Meryl comedy shit at this point. She's got a lot of her mannerisms, which she's really started to hone in on for her sort of comedy leading lady career. Have okay, you guys ever watched the Julia like shows on yeah. TV on like, Oh PBS? yes. On PBS. Sure. Not honestly, not consistently because I guess I don't know. Like, I guess I was sort of what, well, whatever I was too old for them in real time. And, but like, I've seen many of them in real like they used to be David, on. You're never too old for Julia. Mm, right. Never. Exactly. I, I should, I should just do it. But um, I just remember, I remember how yeah. striking they were yes. and how lo-fi yeah. they looked right. and yeah. like the, the tonal, the warm tonal, like quality of it. It was mesmerizing as a kid. She and was then so she was yeah. weird. Such a character. As a kid, it was very yeah. soothing when it was on. Right. Yes. Yeah. This movie, like I think Julia Child, she's just such an iconic figure, but this movie makes you really think like, this is a really fucking weird woman. In a, She's in a great way, but like, <laughs> I mean, but but it's like her whole persona is so odd. Yeah. Uh, and that's he what is when pause, pause, pause. Bad okay. news. Card full. Give me five minutes to dump the card, and then okay. Did this okay. just start a new recording? It just happened. I think your cable TV is experiencing difficulties. Please do not panic. Resist the temptation to read or talk to loved ones. <laughs> purposefully comes downstairs to make an appearance and then after I was like what was that about and he was like the people love me I read the comments the people love me I mean here's the thing he's not wrong I know that's that is the problem I need to find love him I need to find it but someone in the blank check reddit started a thread of memes of Peter Newman no showing up in the comments of Instagram live shows 
I keep wanting, wanting to be like, they don't love you, get out. And it's just no, not, the proof is in the, the pudding. The problem is he's absolutely right. They love him. I know. <laughs> They'll and take as ham. much of that as He just is a, he's a ham for the... They, they love it. He's doing the backstroke in the river of ham. Okay, now I'm recording. Apologies, apologies, okay. apologies. Okay. Amy Adams. Let's Amy talk about Adams. Amy Adams. Now, here's Amy yes. Adams before Julie and Julia. Okay, guys? Obviously, mm-hmm. there's her early... She's a young person. Dropped at gorgeous psycho beach party. Cruel yep. intentions too. that one Buffy episode. Catch me if you can. I feel like one small villa episode. Catch me if you can was supposed to be her breakthrough. And then yet still it's like when she's in June bug three years later, it's still kind of like, who's this? You know, Absolutely. like there's still that element. But after that, uh, you she know, she's Oscar in Talladega Nights. for June bug. Yes, right. She should have won. And and the, absolutely, absolutely agree. But the other thing that happens is Enchanted was like so many bigger stars in the running. And I think Disney made the binary decision of, fuck, she's good. And also the premise is so money in the bank. We can make this movie at a much lower budget if we just hire her and let the premise be the star. Who else was in the running? I forget, but I remember it being surprising that she got the role. Like deadline. Well, because like, it, it must have been right off of Junebug, right? It was, and they were like, she's like yeah. an indie actress who like got an Oscar animation for a movie no one's seen. It seemed like right. a weird choice. And people forget that Patrick Dempsey is above the title in that movie. Like yes, he, he was the of one they used is. to sell it. She was not. Oh, McDreamy. You see, what they did was they took the word muck. Okay. Yes. MC and they put it in front of a, a word that means like handsome. Mm-hmm. This is what they dared do in the mid two thousands. No one had ever thought that that would be possible that someone could be ask, muck dreamy. Yes. No, I get it. And then there was also muck steamy and of course, uh, 17 seasons later, the television <laughs> has never been the same. Um, Season two of Grey's Anatomy is still incredible. Um, Uh, But yes, but yes, it's Junebug and Enchanted as the real one-two punch where people are like, oh, fuck, can she do anything? Is she she both like a very skilled, serious actress and innately a movie star who can apply herself to any genre? And in the middle, you have like the weird things that people forget, like her being Jim's girlfriend on The Office and Taldega Knights, as you said. But post-Enchanted, it's just like- Charlie Wilson's war, right. Yeah, right, yeah, yeah. right. Post Enchanted, it's just like, here she is. The next year, yep. Sunshine Cleaning, Mrs. Pettigrew lives for a day, and then Doubt, there's her second Oscar nomination. Yep. She really is and with Meryl. incredible. With Meryl. And then 2009, Night the Museum, Julie and Julia, both movies, huge hits. Right. And then 2010 leap year, I feel like is, it, you know, this is still the last gasp era of like, well, well, let's put you in a rom-com. Like, geez, you're That's a big a bad female movie. star. Yeah. Yeah. But she is good in it. She's always good. Right. Yeah. That that slowed her momentum a little bit, but then that's not really year. Yeah. The, the fighter in the Muppets. Right. Yeah. No, the Muppets is the year after. Oh, you're right. Sorry. She's so good in the fighter. Right. We all agree that she should have won for the fighter. That's, yes. Yeah. Uh, I mean, she, oh, she's better than Melissa Leo. That's for sure. No offense to Melissa Leo. And then in the master, it was kind of like, man, like. She is fucking special. And since then, yeah. the only movie I have liked her in is Arrival. And it really drives me crazy. Like, it's not like I think she's terrible in the other movies. She's yes. been, but like, I have kind of struggled with her post um, master career. Like she's th- made a lot think- of choices that make sense on paper and kind of just didn't work out. 
I think she's incredible in her. I think that's a very slept on performance. Yeah. Uh, I think she's uh, really fucking strong that in that. I know you dislike well, that movie. I, I think that she's movie's so, okay. so good. It's in okay. That. Sure. Yeah, she's fine in her. But this is the thing. Like, I think wow. she's fine in Big Eyes. American Hustle, you hate. I yeah. think she's good in. That's obviously Ugh. a a much debated performance. I don't right. like I mean, that I mean, movie. also she she's stuck playing Lois Lane for three movies, and I feel like she never really got to do that. A fucks ton her up with that. Right. Uh, Big eyes. I've obviously my piece on nocturnal <laughs> sure. animals. We all hate the Lois Lane thing. As you said, should have been a slam dunk. There's an alternate universe in which Amy she's Adams is the best ever. Lois bad. Lane. Like, no, she's but fine. The, those are not the right movies for her. Uh, yes, and then Arrival is like, once again, that is a movie where you're like, fuck, does she finally win the Oscar for this? Doesn't even get nominated. And Rude. then she gets the Vice nomination, which at this point you're like, has she crossed over into the territory where people now resent that she's almost an automatic nomination in a way that's preventing her from ever actually winning? I think people resent like, oh, am I going to have to give her an Oscar? It's the Winslet thing or whatever. You know, She yeah, has six sure. nominations. It's crazy. I agree. I yeah. agree that she has six nominations. Like for my money, she is perhaps my my favorite like current working actress. See, wow, that's I can't big... say that anymore. I I know. I look. I know. I know. She hasn't been on her strongest run recently, but like she is one of the people who I get most excited about seeing, largely because she does feel like such a classical movie star to me. She feels yeah. like someone like Barbara Stanwyck, where it's like. She can do anything like she can do sure. a musical. She can yeah. do a, a big, broad comedy. She can do something more subtle. She can be the lead. She can be supporting. She can do Griff, you're missing her best performance, which is the Muppets movie. We said that you did. Eh, yeah. I mean, you mentioned oh. it. It's, it's, she's cute in that. She's I think fun. she's very good in that. But that's a perfect yeah. example of she can do anything. Get you an Amy Adams who can do both. Yeah. Like it is unusual for the same person who can pull off the fighter to be able to pull off the Muppets. Yes. You got to give credit to that range. You must, David. I, I love Amy Adams. I, I think she's great in lots of movies. I just feel a little kind of like, like, I'm. look, I've always wanted to know, you know, the, I've, the answer to the question, what if there was a woman in the window? But like, I don't think I'm going to like the answer from every all the buzz around that movie. Sure. And then like the other thing she's got. Hellbilly Elegy. It's the it Ron Howard Hillbilly, uh, Hillbilly LG yeah. movie. Like, I want to walk into the sea. That's what I want to do when I hear question. that. Did any of us watch Sharp Objects? I watched oh, Sharp yeah. Objects. She was very good at that. She was, she was, I was, was not. good. I, it was good. I mean, that, that thing was incredibly watchable and she was <laughs> obviously, you know, bringing her Amy Adams heat. I was not. Sh the whole time I'm like, is this just trash? <laughs> like, like I sure. couldn't be sure if it, the, the thing was actually good, but she was great. I like how it made teens seem so creepy. That was my oh, takeaway. These teens, these yeah, teens, what, what, man. What's Ama? What's her oh. name? <laughs> um. Anyway, Amy Adams. It's interesting, but right now this is a year after doubt. Mm -hmm. This is another Meryl collaboration, although I guess they don't meet. I guess they didn't even hang out probably. But but you kind of have to imagine, maybe this is baseless that Meryl was like, I like Amy. I would like Amy to do this. Yes, yeah, there's no way her. Meryl sure. didn't sign off. Right and on. also, like, Amy Adams is such a good match for Nora. Like, she feels Absolutely. Meg Ryan-y, right? Like, totally. I mean, I would she say does. she's a, a better actress than Meg Ryan or maybe has more range mm -hmm. or something. Okay, but well, like, there is, is that kind of like... Stop you. 
incredibly okay. lovable. Go ahead. I love Meg Ryan. I love Amy Adams and I agree with Griffin. Sure. She's an incredible talent and we're very lucky to have her. But I don't know if I find this character very annoying. I don't know. I actually, I do find this character very annoying. And I think Amy Adams does an incredibly good job of making her likable at the same time. Yes. I think maybe a part of that is the research I've done after on the real person who does seem slightly problematic. The real person seems intense. Yeah, yes. I will say. Uh, it's kind of wild to think that her sequel book to the Julie Julia Child book came out the year this movie came out. And right. the sequel book is like, man, me and my husband cheated the fuck on each other. <laughs> like, I know. Whoa, it, like, did we cheat on a career? <laughs> right. The follow up book because is, she- I wanted to learn how to be a butcher. I worked in a butcher right. shop. This was my new food experiment. But also this one isn't about my husband being good. This is about us fucking other people. Right. right. And her saying like, I had an affair the entire time. Yeah. And, and like, just, I think it's it like an intense it. affair. Right. It does. Yes. Um, I, it has, I, I, I really respect the con. I think the contrast, uh, between Julie and Julia is what makes this movie great. Mm-hmm. Um, you need it. I'm not someone who thinks that this should just be a Julia child movie because then it's just half as interesting. Yes. But the character I do find annoying. Can I make my my sort of point, my take? I've been I've been holding on to here. Please do. It, it, this this is kind of a selfless performance from Adams because in order for the movie to work, she has to take the fall in terms of being the annoying character, right? In a way to make Julia Child look bigger and better. Uh, I I think watching this now through the prism of how internet culture has changed, which I I do think. I give Nora the credit that she could see it happening. I think it's why she was attracted to making a movie about one of the first people to have sort of blog crossover success, to be able to excel out of the blog world into a different medium. It's the same reason she was so fascinated by email so early on, being able to understand sociologically the difference that was going to make in human behavior. I think the kind of stealth point that Nora is making in this movie is the value of having to live and work in sort of obscurity before you're ready to make your first statement versus internet culture, which gives you an immediate feedback loop. Like watching this movie, the scene where it's like she's had the blog for two weeks, she invites friends over for dinner, she won't stop talking about the blog and people in the comments and whatever, and you step back and go like, perspective she probably has 200 readers at this point and the movie is making her insufferable whereas in this point in her career when you cut to the other narrative meryl is still like trying to get into cooking school you know yes for for julie it is like i am learning how to cook and how to write and having an audience and letting it go to my head all at the same time versus the very gradual build of Julia is already in her 50s. She's lived a longer life. She's had other careers. She moves to a different country, not like throwing a dramatic fit over, I can't believe we're moving from Brooklyn to Queens, but I can't believe we're moving to France, right? Like everything Julia is doing is so much more monumental. She deals with it with so much more grace. And then she gradually has to learn how to cook, how to prove herself, then learn how to write, then go through publishing, I think the Julia part 
is like purely about joy. It really yes. is. It's about the joy of food. It's about the joy of Paris. It's about the joy of her relationship, her of, friendships, of her fucking sister. Fucking turn the lights off with Stanley Tucci, her sister. Oh, yes. my favorite. One of my favorite parts of the movie is like one, just the casting of Jane Lynch. So tall. Brilliant. Um, but also just like Griffin, you're saying like how sort of funny a person Julia Child is like mm-hmm. when you meet her sister and you're like, oh, this is just what they're like. They're just it's screaming also- <laughs> at the train station. <laughs> right. Like, like Lee is on air at this point. Right. I remember yeah. Yeah. just like when when Jane Lynch enters in the movie the audience like bursting into applause because it was like, that's such a slam dunk. The work's it's already done. smart casting. Right. They're just like, I know what she's going to sound like. Of course she's tall enough to play it. Like it was just, oh great, we get to watch the two of them together for 15 minutes doing it. And there's that voices. moment where it's like, why wouldn't any, you know, boys date us or and they go too tall. Yeah. Like, you know, yeah. like they're just... <laughs> She's so because Meryl Streep not tall. Meryl Streep is no. Messina size. She's a short king, so she must and, be standing on fucking yes. apple boxes. Absolutely, and they cast a lot of short actors around her. Because yeah. Jane Lynch Pointedly. is like six feet tall. She's like really, yes. really tall. Yeah, no, they built smaller sets for the Jane Lynch scenes. I think she's on significant heels or apple boxes, and for right. most of the other scenes, they pointedly cast actors who are like four eleven. Yes. <laughs> I remember Nora talking about this in interviews. Right. Rom, you're right. It's all about the, all the joys of all these things and her learning how to like translate it. Yeah. And then the Amy Adams part is all about obstacles. Right. But it's also about ego. It's about her desperately looking for outside validation that she exists. Yes. And she yes. says that explicitly. I want to feel like I exist. Yes. And so in contrast, it's very easy to dismiss the Amy Adams part because obviously watching Julia Child get excited about the simplest pleasures in life is exciting yeah. and enjoyable. But, right. but I think that ultimately is why the Amy Adams part is so important. Is I mean, it's a very different time. The inclusion of the internet, all of that. I mean, it's just, it's impossible in, you know, a post 9-11, I, what, it's like, 2003 when it's two i think it's it's 2002 2002. yeah it's impossible to just run around the street and get excited about onions and potatoes i mean so the contrast you need her to be a little bit annoying and also the narcissistic feedback loop of just having like the internet be able to make you feel like the most important person in the world you know like julia goes through so many steps or julie rather goes through so many steps that as you said are based in like what makes you happy Find the thing. People tell you you can't do this. People tell you there isn't an audience for this. It doesn't matter. She's doing the thing that makes her happy. It's not career-minded. She's living a life, and she finds a career out of it versus Julie, who's looking for the end result from the very beginning. She wants Julia Child to notice her. She wants people to follow her thing. She wants to feel like she matters. She wants to feel like people know her name. I mean, it's like pointed that the introduction or one of her introduction scenes is that thing where she picks up the phone and they say, I'd like to speak to someone important. And I think it's pointed that she gets this annoying and that the main crux of her arc in this movie is her husband being like, I can't fucking deal with you. You're becoming an egomaniac. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But there's also it's like in Julia, Julia Child's era in the 50s, what is expected of her really is just to be a good hostess and a lovely wife. Right. You know, and to have kids, which, of course, is this like barely, you know, like there's that scene, the scene, that scene is so good where. Uh, she learned her sister is pregnant. 
Um, but like, you know, which she can't do or, you know, that that's obviously an issue, but like there's nothing else expected of her. Whereas with Amy Adams's care with Julie, it's like, well, wh- what are you? What's your thing? Are you a novelist? Like what's come on? Like what's your, what, what what's your whole identity going to be? And she's got all these career girlfriends, Casey Wilson the lost generation and, shit. You know, it's like, right. Who are like right. build buying parcels and like, and this is like an, elegy movie for new york city as well that efron yeah. is doing where it's like yeah post 9 11 it just like like did we do we even care about like what the city's gonna look like anymore because there's like she right. works for the lmdc like which is basically gonna like you know rebuild downtown manhattan in the name of like a revitalization with all these malls and towers and stone you know and like and and right, so she's just the jewel, the blog thing is like it's like well maybe this can be my thing. I need a thing. I need to like yeah. identify myself. I love the scene when uh, Julia goes to Avis's house and they're like talking about the American cookbook and it's like pot roast for housewives. And right. it's interesting because you in that moment you realize that like I I think Avis says something like this is a book for bored housewives cooking or whatever. Mm-hmm. And like Julia Child is a bored housewife who finds cooking but her passion and her presence is what takes it to the next level but at that moment that's exactly what she's doing she's just like fulfilling a housewife career and so much of it's accidental it's like what's a hobby what's a thing i can do at home i'm i'm post career you know my husband has me stationed here and then it's i want to learn how to cook for myself then it's meeting other people then turning it into the school then the book is just because they're like our book isn't selling we need an american perspective and at the point that the movie ends it's like how weird that anyone would want to see me on tv you know, versus the Julie thing, which is like from post one, it's refreshing the page, waiting to see yeah. are people acknowledging and right. validating what I'm doing as yeah, I'm on the very fa- first step of my journey. I want there's people to be celebrating the, like, me. Oh my God, are people do people actually care what I'm saying? It's like yeah. why are not pe- right. why are people not caring what I'm saying? But then you have what I think is the thesis scene of the movie. Um, that's again, kind of a mirror of that where, which is when Julie meets Julia meets Avis in real life for the first Mm -hmm. time, which is the scene that made me cry on rewatch. This is certainly not a movie that made me cry the first time I watched it where it's like, they've had this long correspondence, you know, they've only been virtual people to each other. Right. But they know each other so well. And like when they meet, it's like they told they're like, of course, like there's Avis. I'm Julie, you know, like that even that kind of connection, like which Nora is obviously so nostalgic for, like Nora is kind of like this is this can't exist in the same way in Julie's world, even though she's sort of, you know, we're we're playing in the same pool. Like that's obviously the same kind of idea, right? These these virtual friends. No. And there's a lot of that. Like, right. It's it's. The version of that that Julie is doing is always going to be more performative. You know, it's Julia represents an era when uh, people could do things purely for pleasure, you know, for the value of the thing itself. Sure. And she lives this charm. It is a charmed life in so many ways, of course. Like, it's such a nice, you know, environments that she's in. Right. But but the hints of the things you get from before that, that she was, uh, you know, reportedly a virgin until she met her husband in her late 30s. There were always this rumors that the two of them were spies, which they kind of denied. But the movie has the little reference to it. 
to keep it sort of mysterious. Um, you know, I feel like every time we've covered a filmmaker who's lighter, and it particularly happened both here and with Nancy, I see some people scoffing where it's like, these filmmakers are like frothy. They don't be, they don't deserve to be discussed on the same level, which A, I think is some ingrained sexism in our culture, especially as relating to these types of movies, which are never taken as seriously, you know, as not only serious prestige movies, but also like big action movies or whatever. And I, I feel like, you know, it, it, someone like me who has been in enough terrible fucking movies and TV shows has only grown to have more appreciation for this type of craft, which makes itself look very easy to do. And I don't mean that as any sort of backhanded compliment or light praise. You realize if if it was this easy to do, then everyone would do this. Then you'd have 10 movies this good a year, you know? Um, but I also feel like Nora is a filmmaker who has such consistent themes running across her entire body of work. And you think about how often, like, her three most successful movies all have this sort of split narrative, right? Where they're about people communicating over right. words versus yes. in person. And it's three different versions of it. You have You Got Mail, Sleepless in Seattle, and this. Yeah. You've Got Mail, but it's you're right. one person is hearing the other person's words and is trying to get in touch with them. But the other guy isn't even acknowledging Sorry, You mean Sleepless words. in Seattle. Sorry, yes. Yeah. You've Got Mail is, they know each other in real life, they know each other through their words, and the two relationships are different. Right. And right. this is two people in different timelines, in different spaces, and it's an unrequited love story. It's like one person trying desperately to feel like she's right. connected to this other person and that she exists on the same wavelength of this person. And it is so pointed that Efron includes the scene where yes. Julie gets the phone call telling her that Julia Child doesn't like the blog. Julia Child's rep was like, oh, no, I don't I don't think that's very good. But yeah, if you right. look it up, Julia Child had a comment that was like she doesn't think that four letter words belong. She felt like it was kind of a narcissistic exercise. Like right. it's even more unpacked if you look into what happened in real life. I uh, let me look. I thought it was all from the rep. It, it was Perhaps. all from Ju Julia's. It was all from Child's editor. There was no words except she was saying like. Uh, Julia didn't like what she called quote unquote the flimsies. She didn't suffer fools if you yes. know what I mean. So that sort of implies I guess that Julie is a flimsy whatever that means. But uh, but yes it is it is great that she includes that. I think because like there's like Stronger a movie I love the mm -hmm. the Jake Gyllenhaal he recovers from the, the bombing incident you know the accident he loses his legs. They leave In out that movie, that they end up getting divorced. A hundred percent. And I get why right. they do, because the movie's not going to be about that. The movie is about this, you know, and like, it's fine that you wanted to just take this section of the, but like, but so I'm just saying like Nora definitely could have just like cleanly left that out and like been like, look, it's just two parallel tales, but, but she doesn't want to do that point. She's trying to make. It's like, that's the moment that makes it clear that having Amy Adams be this annoying is intentional you know yeah. i feel yeah. like the negative reviews at the time were judging this movie like it's like oh i'm supposed to be equally charmed by these two halves and it's a miscalculation no but that's the problem the movie is not setting that up you know like that the whole point is that they're on completely different levels 
Right, and it's this one woman struggling to feel like she has a relationship with this other woman through words. She's reading the book. She's writing her words. She wants to believe they're the same, that they're going through the same journey, and they're pointedly not. And I appreciate, I think, as someone who grew up reading cookbooks and— I'm a very obsessive person and watching the Food Network and immediately, you know, really forming these strong obsessions with women who uh, cook on TV or write cookbooks. You know, cooking is such a personal and uh, emotional thing. And when you read cookbooks, you read the forward, you read the excerpts, you read, you know, you make the food, you really do feel connected to the person who wrote the recipe. Um, and I know, like, growing up, I just, I put all of these women on such a high pedestal, thinking, like, I make her, you know, white beans. She must, you know, be the loveliest person in the world. You know, I cooked her roast chicken. You know, I feel so connected right. to her. And then as I like, grew up a little bit, I would read stories about them being difficult or, you know, not being like super friendly or whatever it may oh, be. I mean, a lot of this stuff is coming out in the wash. I feel like there's a reckoning in food culture, much like what happened in other areas of entertainment. Yeah, sure. A couple right. years ago. Yeah. Yeah. stuff. What happened to the shallot queen lady? Oh, God. But it, it really is kind of heartbreaking. <laughs> Let's litigate the shallot queen. We're not, I'm not talking about the shallot queen. I'm joking. Uh, I'm joking. But when you, when you like feel so connected to someone based on something so small, but it feels so big to you. Mm-hmm. And you just assume yeah. that they feel the same way. It just like if in real life someone shares a recipe with you, it is such a personal and emotional thing that when you read a cookbook and cook out of it, you kind of feel like they feel the same way about you. Okay, so that's my biggest take. My biggest take is that this movie secretly is a romantic comedy, but it's an unrequited love story. Right. Yeah. It's about the relationship between Julie and Julia. Only in Julie's head. Yes. And I totally identify with that. In the same way that it, that uh, uh, Meg Ryan is listening to Tom Hanks on the radio and going, he would love me if we met. And well, in the same that- way that Tom Hanks, when he like is shown the letter, is like, I don't fucking care about this. Yes. This is Sleepless in Seattle, except without the happy ending. I love, I love this scene. When they're shopping for the plates and it's like, I think 10 plates too. And then like, oh my God, this is my grandmother's China. We have so much in common. Yes. Yes. Right. There's that scene late where she's like, no, Julia is perfect. You know, where like her husband's like, come on, everyone makes mistakes. Like Julia would have made mistakes. And she's like, no, no, Julia is perfect. Like that's the whole fucking point. Don't you get it? I cried at the end because I think like there's something really beautiful about the fact that she ends the movie with her saying, I love you, Julia. Mm-hmm. And the, having the that end like of the movie is incredible. Incredible. Yeah. And like that her love for her never wavered. You know, she kind of I see that as her like coming to terms with the fact that Julia doesn't have to love her just because yes. she loves Julia. That's not what's important. It's what she can get out of her her. work, which is the other big Nora thing. It's the power of words. It's the fact that you can feel that intimate a relationship with someone through their writing, you know, that you can have this ability. If you're able to capture your soul properly in the written word, 
It's pointed that so many of her movies come back to the written word. Despite moving to film, moving to a visual medium, within the actual stories, they so often circulate around the power of the written word and the idea that that can transcend time and space. (laughs) You know? That Amy Adams in 2002 can say I love you to a person she will never meet who yes. has said disparaging things about her through a publicist. <laughs> right. And still but, leave butter behind. Right. Right. Yeah. That's a beautiful and, and, thing. Yeah, it, it is, is beautiful. There's that concept of like, sure, Julia may have dissed her like in the present day. But when you're, you know, you've got that at the end, that mirror-y thing where, you know, Julia comes into the kitchen after Julie has left and we've, sw- you know, swapped back. Like... She's left a legacy that can be obsessed over and celebrated and like, you know, loved. And, you know, I like, like there's that, I think Nora's fascinated with that, with like what happens to a legacy like that. And like, you've got that monument of the kitchen. The mastering the art of French cooking is like, I don't know. Isn't it the quintessential American cookbook? There are a few works that I feel like so single-handedly transformed an entire perception of an art form right it's so universal and like yeah. i my dad grew up cooking out of joy of cooking and yeah. julia's book and like, i just the right. two yeah uh, I just feel and, like, and it's great that there's the scene where julia meets the uh know. you know yeah. the joy of cooking lady francis sternhardt i love right. that I love that she's like, oh, I never, I didn't test all the recipes. And like in Julia's mind, that book was the perfect book. Right. And it was a Bible and it was kind of untouchable. And you meet this lady and she's just like, yeah, I didn't test the recipes. They took all my money. Those bastards. But that's like the Russian (laughs) nesting doll thing. That's another scene where Efron is giving you the clues as to what she's really saying, which is like, Julie keeps on talking about like, what if I met Julia? What if she reads my blog? Do you think we'd get along? We're exactly the same. And she's thinking about, A, I want people to like me. I want my blog to be validated. But B, also, I want to be friends with Julia Child. And what I think she realized at the end of it is like, you don't need to have a personal relationship with the actual person. The relationship to the work they did can be just as valuable in the same way that Meryl, uh, Julia rather, meeting the Joy of Cooking author is so disappointing to her, not because she's dismissive, but because her perception of her own book seems so silly and frivolous to her that she's like, does this deflate me that the person who I've held up as this idol, who I've only wanted to meet, ends up being a disappointment? It's like, no, the book is the thing. Well, and it's also just fascinating, like, the story she tells. Like, Julie is existing post-9-11. Julie is existing after the war. And -hmm. the joy of cooking is birthed out of the Depression. Like, you know, her husband shoots himself, and she's like, I guess I'll just write a book of recipes. Like, what else do I have to do with myself? And like and it, that 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 was in the early 30s like the the thing you said Romley about recipes like they are weirdly intimate because the whole point of entertaining and bringing out food right is like that it'll look so nice when you give it to someone you know when you put it on the table and you're kind of like you're not revealing like what went into it right on the cooking side like you know you're just you're just like the finished product is so perfect so if you're showing someone a recipe you're like yeah this is what I'm doing. Like, am I doing it wrong? Like, you know, there's a weird kind of like nakedness to that. Yeah. And also it's a glimpse into someone's life. Uh, and a lot of times into a different culture. Uh, it's, it's, it, they're like a very powerful thing. It's a and form I think, of autobiography. Yeah. And I think the thing is that cookbooks, uh, 
um, kind of have to be seen as a standalone thing. I think you have to read them and enjoy them and cook from them and not think too much about who wrote them. Because within the cookbook, you have all these personal stories. You have a full uh, picture of who the person is, why these recipes matter to them. They are books. And I think when people try to then like dig too much into the person who wrote them, and in this case, like, you know, Amy Adams seeking the validation from real life Julia rather than just cooking these dishes and having great successes and feeling connected to her in that way is a good example of that. Don't you think also, I mean, I d- watching this, I kept on thinking about the, the Alton Brown episode of Hot Ones, which I have watched four or five times. It is one of the better Hot Ones episodes in my estimation. He talks about how uh, he was a director and a cinematographer for like music videos and commercials. And he decided to drop out of that, go to cooking school and learn how to cook because he felt like there is a way to make food shows better than this. I want to apply my understanding of production to the food world if I can only learn it, right? Can we? All right. Well, I just want to talk about cooking shows. Well, this is what I'm about to say. Okay, go. And he talked about how uh, he sort of felt that in the ether. He made that shift late 90s, early 2000s, and it timed up coincidentally with the explosion of food culture and especially of the food network and personality-based food culture, which he attributes directly to 9-11. He said, like, I was at Food Network and I just saw the ratings explode across the entire channel in the months after 9-11. It suddenly just became the type of content that everyone wanted. It's comforting. Right, food becomes comfort. It becomes a sense of control over the universe. I can do something. There's some sort of order. There's something to follow. But also, he says, that's a double-edged sword because then it becomes, this is a way to get famous. And the personalities are getting famous. And it creates this sort of culture of uh, idols, you know, in a way that is different from someone like Julia Child who lives an entire lifetime, who does the work who toils for years and years before she accidentally becomes this kind of figure. And and that's 100% what's wrong with food media right now. And why we're seeing this sort of collapse where people keep on oversharing, well, that's getting the thing. too confident. Like, yes. If you read Julia Child's book, and that's what I was trying to say, like it's, it's all there. Like you have a full picture of Julia Child. You don't need to go online and read all about Julia Child. You don't need to look at every picture of her. And now cookbooks... And like these viral recipes, viral cookbooks, so much of it is like, read this recipe, but then watch this video and look at this Instagram and look at these right, tweets. It's very Instagram-y, yeah. Which always ends up like people get hoisted by their own petard. Exactly. And it becomes so much less about the food and more about like the vibe and the brand. In- until they either Gross. cancel themselves or just become annoying and people start to resent them. Right. And it's like, that's not what cookbooks and cooking shows and food is supposed to be about. But cooking shows as a concept, that's a weird idea for <laughs> Why, TV. Why, you can't eat the food? You can't eat it. It's like you're just like going to watch them like a freak cook. That's like going and watching someone at the laundromat. Like it's a person running errands, technically. Is it, is it like well, going and watching someone at the laundry? It's, it's, <laughs> you're just I watching argue, someone cook. 
I would argue that that the Food Network is like a Brian De Palma movie. It's like a perverted (laughs) voyeuristic. Okay, here's the thing about the Food Network. A lot of people just watch it to calm their nerves. Right. A lot of people don't even cook the food. Yeah. I find it wildly entertaining. The thing about the Food Network that I think people like so much and that uh, the reason why it becomes quite addictive is because there's something really fascinating about watching something from start to finish. Totally. It's great programming. You see like a bunch of carrots, parsley, beef, mushrooms, and then 30 minutes later, you have both pork and yolk. Okay, but you're a song and dance man. Yes. Right? You've come up... You've learned to tap dance. You're a damn entertainer. And then someone tells you years from now, a guy is just going to build a house and people are going to watch the shit out of that. That is so absurd to me. I don't know. I just, I like, I love that stuff. Ben's going after this old house now. Yeah. (laughs) Come on, this old house. I don't think I've ever watched the Food Network or any other cooking show and been like, I got to make what I'm seeing right now. Like when I'm when I'm cooking, I'm looking online, I'm looking in my cookbooks like that's like I that's how I can experience recipes. I sort of need to like have it be very static so that I can always just sort of like refer back to the ingredients like, you know, Romilly's right. Like watching it is more about that weird. It's like watching someone like you watch the Marie Kondo show and she like cleans up their yeah. house. You know what I mean? Like yeah. You're watching a transformation. It's, it's fun to see. It's the most touching, charming, exciting show in a while. And it's because it's like, it's the same thing. It's like, there's so many emotional connections within a house, why people keep things, mm. we know where things are, all of that. And the same with cooking. It's like, it's such a personal experience. And it's very intimate art. Um, And I think people almost never cook from cooking shows. It's it's pure entertainment. Yeah, Yeah. well, because you would make a mess and you don't have a giant kitchen and you don't have amazing ingredients and like a PA to clean up after you. Right. And also, I I truly never, never cook as listeners of this show know. And you know better than anyone, Romilly. But like last week, you and I were texting about how both of us have been going through like a really bad two week anxiety spiral uh, over case surging and the state of the world. And what did I recommend to you? Uh, Cooking. Binging with Babish. Binging with Babish. I've just been watching this fucking YouTube channel. Do you guys know about this? I don't. Although I feel like I've heard that. I've heard binging with Babish. That makes someone put it on our Reddit. I think because he covered something that overlapped with our show, and I, I, I'm way behind the eight ball on this. Apparently, he's been huge for years, but he's a dude who has a YouTube channel where he just makes dishes from movies and TV shows. Yeah, I feel like I've seen some of these videos before because I it is so iconography. Yeah, it is. It is so calming. That's it is so relaxing. Yeah. I'm not going to make I mean, any of these dishes no. ever. But also he falls into this category where he shoots and edits his own stuff and he frames it so that his head is not visible. Like it's almost like the fucking adults in Peanuts. You're just seeing his hands from the same stationary angle time lapse work on the different ingredients explain the process of trying to replicate something based off an image figuring out the way to do it most accurately figuring out the way that would taste better and he yep. just has this very very calming like monotone voice and he's not making it about himself he's not even showing his face on screen but in this way you're talking about it ends up being very revealing and very personal yes and i think 
I think, I hope that food media will go back to this joy of cooking state. Yeah. And I think, you know, old fashioned cooking shows should make a comeback. I know I've been in plenty of meetings about cooking shows where they're like, but what's your catch? What's the hook? And yeah. for a while, I feel like I was conditioned to think like, okay, cooking is not enough. Like having a personality in cooking is not enough. You have to like cook, but also go here and also surprise and like all this shit. And let's like distract people as much as possible. Mm -hmm. And I hope that we can go back to just the joy of cooking. It doesn't mean it has to be boring, yeah. but you know, just someone who genuinely cares and is excited to show you something. Hey, you know who's got a good show, a good take on a contemporary way of doing a food-oriented show is Dave Chang's Ugly Delicious. Yes, on Netflix. Ugly Delicious kills it. It's so like great. right now prescient yeah. in like the conversation that's happening. Um, he, it's outstanding. And in a Nora Ephron way where he's really interested in the sociological relationship we have. But he also food. loves food and loves cooking and yeah. is like a very right. like warm kind of nerdy presence in a lot of ways. Now. Which is yeah. what now. Now he is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, now. You mean because he right. used to be kind of like... You know, a, like a I'm the disruptor. I'm like, yeah, right. right. He was yeah. he was chefy. Uh, I wouldn't amazing, say he was an asshole, right? But he definitely he was, was a like chef. He a was strong like the, he personality. He fit into right. the oh, yeah. chef yeah. mold. Every Growing. kitchen yeah. I've worked in, the chef always yelled and threw stuff at yeah. like <laughs> the people working underneath him. But most chefs don't have that arc, and he like yeah. really took a long look at himself, and it's now like I mean. The, the latest season of Ugly Delicious is so touching yeah, and emotional. Yeah. Uh, Padma Lakshmi's new show, Taste the Nation, on and, Hulu oh, yeah. is incredible. It rules. Um, it really is amazing. That made me very hopeful. I think people should just put Padma in every show from now on. Totally. Yeah. She's so good on Ugly Delicious, uh, too. But that that is a thing for you, Rombly, where, like, you've— You've worked in restaurants. You've done like sort of like internships and apprenticeships and kitchens. Uh, and you like came out of it going like, I don't want to work in a restaurant. I don't like this culture. Yes. Like there's something very abusive about like chef kitchen culture, which drew you more to the personality driven thing. But there's the different type of pitfall that comes with that, which is what yeah, we're so discussing. Now I'm going back in the like hands-on cooking direction right. because I just find food media so vapid and disgusting right now. I think it like, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I would talk to someone who was a publisher or, you know, were a book agent and they were like, you have a great idea. You have a great voice, but how many Instagram followers do you have? The, the Bon Appetit collapse is so fascinating to me, yes. especially just like as a point of comparison as we're watching this movie now, right? Which is about someone at the very beginning of online food culture versus like Bon Appetit, which is like this like fall of Rome thing. But I feel like th like the, the test kitchen thing blew up because people really liked the idea that it seemed like this was genuine. Like this is just people who love cooking in a large kitchen, just this cooperative environment that somehow because it was on YouTube, it wasn't as sort of manufactured and personality based as 
uh, uh, food network, you know? Yes. But in fact, we're now just revealing, like, it was an entire house of cards. It was, like, this completely fucked system. Yeah, totally manufactured and personality-based. Yeah. Right. And, like, some people were getting talent deals. Other people weren't right. getting paid. I mean, Absolutely. there was nothing democratic or... It's, it's like Vanderpump Rules or something. It was like they were adding people in under, like, contracts to try to stir yes. up, like, interesting dynamics. And fucking and, and stoking tensions and all this shit. It's insane. But that's that's the point. It's like we keep on finding ourselves in these sorts of traps. Well, if something seems too good to be true, it's probably too good to be true. And I think that's the ultimate thing with the test kitchen. Everyone was like, they all have these amazing personalities. They can cook. They're all happy. They're all friends. Like, this is amazing. And it's like, it was all right in front of us. You know, it was so masterfully crafted and that's not to say that there aren't people who work in the test kitchen who are talented and lovely and who are friends, but as a whole, it was so, it was so false. The actual structure of the thing was, was rotten. And yeah. I, I do feel like, I was just going to say, I, I think in addition to, as, as you said, Romley, like how big things get and all that sort of shit, it's also just like how fast it happens. I think that's yeah. a, a thing that Nora is like latching onto here as someone who much like Julia Child lived an entire life before she became a filmmaker, before she ended up in the career that she would, you know, do until the rest of her life. It's like the idea of being able to do that work internally away from those eyes so that by the time you do have your moment, you are fully at terms with who you are yourself, that the, the public relationship cannot fundamentally steer you too far astray from who you know you are versus if that happens in your early 20s or your late 20s it, your your personality starts to become merged with your public persona and your career yes. you know and it's this thing we see now all the time with social media where like someone blows up and then it's like how quickly did they become an egomaniac after six months ago vo going viral because they had the right take on something yeah, I think going viral is the most damaging thing that can happen to a person. And that's something that this movie is about. No, in a movie when someone goes viral, it's always really exciting. <laughs> they always say, have you seen the, the, the YouTube count on this? Look at the numbers. Look, yeah. if, you, if you even are lucky enough as an actor to get a scene where you tell someone they're going viral, automatic Oscar nomination. Right? Emma Stone just, they, she saw that in the script and she went, fuck, I cannot wait to attend that nominee luncheon. Um, but you're right. This is about an early version of going viral. The, the um, answering machine montage. Yes. You know, mm -hmm. that's sort of like, right. It's like suddenly these people are interested in her and it's like they're interested in her because she found a new gimmick that, oh, you know, was clever right. and sort of spoke to like, Oh, like it's tough to be part of this generation and like looking for, you know, ways to like stick out and, you know, like, you know, but like that's the thing. The second her answering machine goes crazy, she's no longer doing it for the mm -hmm. joy of doing it. Like right, from right. that point on, there's no going back. Everything she posts, she has to think about she's, you know, yeah, it's, it changes we, the content. Do we post on social media for the love of it? Yeah, I'm. I'm in. I'm in it for the love. 
Oh, I love it. That's the exact point I feel That's like point. this movie is making. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Like the blog it's, started as a way to find herself and to feel connected to Julia Child and right. have a passion. And then right. it automatically became a way to get famous. Yes. And, and right. the fact that the big Christmasina fight ends with him saying, and don't blog about this. And then right. it's followed by the scene where you see her type it out. Like she still goes through yes. the exercise of being like, but I have to put it in there. Every right. part of the story is important. I need to share my entire life before she then deletes it, calls him, apologizes and realizes she's become a monster. Um, yes. But also I feel like at the time, the reaction, this is 2009. It's sort of right at the start of the great recession, right? We're only like less than a year into all that. Um, people are like, Oh, get over it. Like, you know, they're like, I cannot sympathize with this person. She has such a nice life. And now I'm like, this is where everyone gets stuck. Like this is where this whole generation is stuck. And it's so hard to do anything like, you know, remotely, whatever that'll stick out. And like, I just, now it just feels like I said, the story of this entire generation. We're on like the third lost generation now. Exactly. Right. Yeah. All these mini lost generations. She really was like so ahead of the curve on just it's crazy. understanding yeah. the psychology of, of where cultures are going. Like to think about getting hung up by your mother because of something you wrote on your blog, like yeah. that could only happen in 2004. Right. It's such just like a weird thing that stands out. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it is like it is a very much an encapsulation of like what is only going to continue to be sort of our generation's legacy. Unfortunately that we're like lazy and always just want to be famous. I've had those conversations with my parents of just like, why did you say that in the podcast? Why did you tweet that? Don't post that. Yeah. You know? mm, mm. I mean, absolutely. And I remember being like, you know, like 20 when I was like, my entire career is based around being funny on Twitter. That is the key to everything. <laughs> my Twitter really matters. I have 200 followers and they're waiting on bated breath for every perfect bon mot. And my mom would be like, why are you tweeting that? And I'd be like, you don't understand. Don't suppress yeah. me. This is my art. Yeah. And I look back and I'm like, who gives a shit? Yeah. You know? Or I, I would be like, I have to cook something so I can post it on Instagram. Right. right. Rather than I cook something, it's delicious. I want to post it to share it. I feel like yeah. that's when it turned sour. And it was because it was like there was this hamster wheel where everyone was posting a recipe every day. Everyone looked a certain way. You know, I don't even have that many followers at all. But it was like this constant like, OK, I'm building something and then I'm going to get to a point where I have something and then I can let go. And as Griffin and I talk about all the time. That never happens. You never get what you want and you're happy with it. And that's how these people like Shallot Lady have these very public downfalls because it's just this yeah. greed and this ego. Yeah. And, and you especially, never fill. You not, never You satisfy. never fill. You never fill. No. And then you end up hurting yourself. Yeah, that whole thing was fascinating. Um, the egg. I just like, you know, we're, we're wrapping up on this movie, but Griff, the egg scene. Okay. I know you don't like yeah. eggs. Yes. Um, and then there's this sort and, of and, bizarre. And think I'm I'm watching this movie for the first time and I'm going, oh, this movie gets me. She's never had an egg in her life. Right. So there's this, she's like, oh, well, if I'm gonna have to eat eggs if I'm gonna do this project because I've, you know, never eaten an egg before. And I was just immediately, I was like, what? She's never eaten an egg. Like, doesn't she like cooking? Like that seems so difficult. And I guess normal, cool. She she's not counting like 
an egg in a cake, right? Or as we said earlier, eggs are in hollandaise sauce, right? Or she's right, not or Jason Manzukis. She's talking about an yeah. egg as the star of the dish. And yes. you're similar, I would assume, Griffin. You don't mind if an egg was correct, like part of the ingredients. But I'm not um, eating an omelet. But so, how do you feel? And I know, Romley, you're very frustrated by Griffin's egg thing. But how do you feel, Romley Griffin, about the eggs. scene where she like swallows the egg? Here's the thing. Sometimes. Because, like, I eat a lot of ramen, right? Right? Sure. Yes, of course. And nothing better than some egg on ramen. Here's the thing. Um, I hate eggs. Uh, obviously, if there's a hard-boiled egg, like, you know, in a hole in ramen, I'm going to notice it. And I always try to ask for it without the egg. Some of the ramen places I go to are authentic enough that the menus do not explain what's in the dish, you know, and it's mostly written in Japanese, and I'm right. ordering a little blindly. And a couple times I've ordered a ramen, and what I thought was cheese ends up being an egg. Much, much <laughs> Griffin, like... Griffin, why do you think there's cheese in your ramen? That's the Because real I question. think I finally found my perfect ramen. Oh yeah, yeah. What cheese, is more cheese, Griffiny than trying to combine ramen and like French like, onion soup. Yeah, seriously. Ugh. Right? It's a, it's a it's a stupid thing that only I would view as a better option is a yeah, big it, lump of melted mozzarella in the middle of a ramen. But I will be eating it. I'll be enjoying it, and then at some point I realize it's an egg. And even though much like Julie says in this movie, oh. It actually just tastes like a cheesy sauce. It feels like a cheesy sauce going down. Once yeah. I realize it's an egg, I can't do it anymore. I get yeah. that, but that's right. That's mental yeah. Yeah. or whatever. It's right. mental. Yeah. It's mental. Stanley Tucci, raw sexual magnetism. There's the scenes where he's shirtless. I mean, I want to touch the Tucci. Yeah, yeah, yeah for please sure. touch. For sure. Hottest performance in the world. Yep. Yeah. Yep. He's always got those stealth guns he's always got Where those he, stealth yes. jacked arms he's kind of jacked he's a little jacked i mean there's the scene where he like reaches over to turn off her light because she's like not doing it quick enough i'm like we yeah. get it buddy you're gonna have sex <laughs> there it, you know what was weird reckoning with was the way that julia decided to sort of approach marketing this book for housewives sure. with using the terminology servantless yeah. and that just yeah, felt that was, very yeah. like uh, this is yep. like uh, it's a long time ago in a lot of different ways. Yes, yeah. yes, for sure, absolutely. I love hearing Mario Batali being mentioned. Uh, mm -hmm. That's really cool. That's how another sort of thing that? that we love to hear and see how it ages. Yeah, look, but but it's it's a time capsule. Like that's one of the yeah, reasons yeah. I think this movie kind of works is because it's not a film about two thousand nine. It's a film in two thousand nine about two thousand two. And so it has enough perspective on everything that even if things change for the current day, it's like that adds more value to the movie in a way. Like the yeah. Mario Batali references lend it an air of what we're talking about of like the arc of false idols and personality based like downfalls and food media. Yes. Yeah, it's a, it's a time piece. It's a great yeah. movie. It is a like great a movie. Watch. Uh, the like last scene watch. really gets me. Yes, time it's a piece. good watch. Yes, great timepiece. It's a $40,000 Rolex. Let's talk <laughs> Let's talk about the box office and then do our Nora rankings and then announce the new miniseries. This is why I wanted to sort of like start steering us into the Oh, end, sure. Griff. Yes. Uh, we have a fair but, amount of but stuff. Yes. 
Huge hit. One of her $300 million grocers. Well, uh, right under, right? 90. Oh, really? Yeah, 94. Wow. Okay. So it's 131 that Michael, we're in the 90s. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, big hit. Gets the one Oscar yes. nomination. Uh, Gets and it the Meryl Streep Oscar nomination. Of like, yeah, people uh, falling in love over the written word. Who did Meryl? Who beat in her? Nine. Sandra Bullock, right? Bullock. Oh. Yeah. Because I remember that was like, because she wins for the Iron Lady, what, a couple years later? Yeah. And I feel like that was when it was kind of starting to be like, she should get a third. Like, yeah. Post Devil Wears Prada. And right, then she gets run, it for fucking Wears Iron Prada, Lady. Yeah, I know. It's me shaking my fist. Who um, are the other film, three? Oh, Gabriel Sidibe would have been my winner that year. Gabriel Sidibe, oh, yeah. um, great performance. And who are like the other the two nominations? You, sorry, uh, Carrie what? Mulligan. I don't like the Bullock performance. Oh, I think the Bullock performance is extremely good. That movie is We've argued over this in the past. Awful. And she mm-hmm. is kind of like, and I never liked Sandra Bullock before. Like, or I don't know. Like I, I had never been a, a huge Bullock fan, even though I love speed and I love some of those early like Bullock, you know, demolition man. But like, I remember being like, ah, Sandra Bullock, get out of here. And like seeing that movie and I'm like, she definitely is a movie star. Like I can't dispute that. I hate this movie, but like this is a movie star performance. Like, and then of course that movie was just such a phenomenon. So weird. I start respecting. It was so weird how much money that movie made. I start really liking Sandy right after that, like gravity and um, the heat. Yeah, she starts that, doing that some post Oscar yeah. run. I really like. Yeah, um, but the other nominees were uh, Carrie Mulligan, Mulligan in an education, which is a fantastic performance in another movie. Mm-hmm. I don't really like and Helen Mirren in the last station, which like whatever. Jesus fucking Christ. Yeah. OK, so box office box office. This movie opened August 7th, 2009. Hmm. Um, it opened number two to 20 million dollars. Hmm. OK which is, I assume right around what they expected. That seems, that seems very right. Like that's like, great. Yep. We're opening in August. It'll, spot. It'll do- July or August sleeper hit. She rides it out, but it's below a big brand name blockbuster that I feel like is probably like slightly disappointing. It's opening at 54. I guess that's pretty good for this. Jojo rise thing. of Cobra. Yeah. I feel like that movie had like toxic, buzz in advance and people were convinced it was going to like face plant bomb and then it opened to 50 which was like lower than they wanted based on how right. much money they had spent on it but viewed as a success based on how poorly it could have gone like it the, the fact that it just barely broke even was like whoo we saved that thing from a tailspin i like that movie yeah. i think it's kind of underrated Sure. I mean, we should do Stephen Summers. Um, it's, number it's three, vulgar auteurism at its best is my argument. Absolutely, that's Stephen yeah. Summers. That's that's yep. the argument mm-hmm. of Stephen Summers. Number three yep. at the box office is a Disney family film uh, with CGI animals. Hmm. We've talked about it on box office games before, and it's always kind of hard uh, to describe this one. Do the animals talk? Yes. Is it the movie G Force? That's right. One of the weirder films, I say this truly, one of the weirder films to ever be made by a major studio. Does that movie exist? Yes, uh, it does, Romilly. It stars Zach Galifianakis and Bill Nye, and it's about a team of covert-speaking guinea pig spies Correct. voiced by Sam Rockwell, Tracy Morgan, 
Nicolas Cage, and Penelope Cruz. The four. Sounds good. And it uh, it was a huge hit. It made like $150 million and still lost money because it cost inexplicably $200 million. <laughs> well, uh, I, I, you know, I mean, Sam Rockwell needed his quote, which was $100 million. That was the problem there. The great joke is Galifianakis goes on Conan to promote that movie. It's the same summer that Hangover comes out. So he clearly did the movie as like to pay the rent. And then now suddenly he's a movie star who would have turned down G-Force. And so right. he does his whole Conan segment just talking about other shit. And then Conan says, you have a movie to promote, right? And he goes, yeah, it's, um, I play a scientist and I have a bunch of talking guinea pigs who are secret agents. You know, it's, a." Uh, it's, I mean, you know the plot. It's, it's adapted from the off-Broadway play. <laughs> like, his joke about how dumb the premise was was, don't make me explain it. I'm pretending it's a story we all know and respect. Um, number four at the box office, Griffin, is okay. I need to check which uh, edition this is. This is the sixth and best edition in a franchise, uh, cinematic franchise, Big cinematic franchise, uh, God, um, that we, sh- you know, whatever is exhausting to think about right now. Sixth and best, Harry Potter, mm. Harry Potter, and, and the the Half Blood Prince. That's right. I think it's yeah. the best. Most people, it's your agree. favorite, and I'm all about Num- it. Number five is a masterpiece. It had been number one the week before Griffin. It has dropped sixty five percent. Wow. Audiences were like, no, thank you. David was like, yes, please. Now is this a Michael Mann movie? No, no. Cause that sounds sort of like, like <laughs> the arc of a Michael Mann movie. Big opening. It and does. People are like, Fuck it does. This. It's like a, a, a comedy Michael Mann movie. It's like a Michael Mann comedy. I, that's, is it, that's, that's go ahead. Is it what? our beloved funny people? That's right. Yep. Funny people. Wow. I forgot that it dropped so hard for a comedy so that is outrageous. So hard. It was such a Ooh. huge drop after a really disappointing opening weekend. People yes. forget that like this is 40 handily outgrossed funny people. Is that true? Yes. I'm looking that up. That's crazy. Yeah. Um. Anyway, so those funny are the people, top five. People were like the, the American audiences were angry at it you're right it outgrossed it yeah people were really angry at funny people um good movie though great movie some other movies the ugly truth we've talked about it his heart it's over his penis and the poster did you see that one rom this is i mean a big high goal phase for you did you even seep down to the level of ugly truth i don't think so what's the plot of this movie he is Howard Stern. He's a shock jock, chauvinist radio host, and Katherine Heigl is hired to produce his radio show and make him more appealing to women. Sounds great. Um, let me look it up. David has presented the theory on this podcast that I'm increasingly agreeing with that uh, Gerard Butler killed the rom-com. Yeah. It, but, uh, Butler, Heigl. The Butler did yeah. it. <laughs> I get weird PTSD when I see a Heigl rom-com it's just that thing where it was like heigl was like this is i'm gonna be here and no one is coming in and like it was kind of the moment where it was like yeah no one's really knocking on the door 
So you can have it for a bit. And, and, she, and Butler yeah, just like was like, I movies. need to work in these movies and kept trying it. They right. both just seemed like such miserable people. That's the uh, problem. It was such a big hit. I, don't, I think you guys just can't handle the ugly truth. But didn't that movie make like $97 million? It made 88 domestic 205 Insane. worldwide. Insane. Pretty good. <laughs> you know, it's not bad. And the like weirdest thing is that he's holding it over his dick. People. He's holding yeah. the heart over his crotch. She's holding it like over her shoulder. What? So what? Like the air over her shoulder is where a woman's heart is. That doesn't make any sense. Hold it over your heart. Isn't that the idea? No, the movie actually is sort of a tin man narrative where she was born without a heart. <laughs> and she's trying to locate one. She's uh, like, where boy. is there one over my shoulder? The same director is legally blonde. Yep. That's right. Wow. That's right. Um, we've also got a perfect getaway, Griffin. Um, kind oh, of a I, I, that's an cool underrated movie. Horror. Yes, I would David agree. Uh, we've got yeah. uh, one of the best movies about uh, aliens being in one's attic. Uh, the film Aliens in the Attic. Fuck, um, I was gonna guess <laughs> Independence uh, Day Resurrection. And you have the highly underrated masterpiece Orphan from the great another vulgar tour. Um, John Colette Sarah. I mean, truly our finest vulgar auteur, and I don't think that's debatable. He's right up there, yeah. Um, yeah, so that's that. Do you have an Efron ranking? I could do it uh, very quickly I mean, while you have movies. one. I know what it is. Uh, I just need to type it out so I don't fuck up in the way I always fuck this up. Hey, okay. real quick, I had an idea I wanted to throw out. Please. We should we should like give fans recipes, original recipes. Yeah, Rom, do you want to do that? No, I've got recipes. Okay. Yeah. What, what, what just kind of recipes? recipes? Buried beef? Buried no, beef. I've got real stuff. Although, Ben, I will <laughs> you say- You can do that, too. There, There is a trend, uh, or it was a trend, or a lot of people were doing it at a time, where like they would bury a beet in the ground for like a year, and then it would resemble meat. Weird. Yeah, huh. I don't normally um, like beets, but I can give it a try. Like, okay, Ben's egg sandwich. Boom! I can write that recipe up. Do it. What's it? I what's will. in Ben's egg sandwich? Taylor ham, an egg over medium. Okay. Pepper jack Sounds cheese good. on a brioche. Brioche. Baby. I'm glad you. I'm glad the brioche came in. Gotta. Sounds good. Thanks. Okay, I have my my ranking locked in. Okay. Do you want to go first, Griffin? Sure. My number one favorite Nora Ephron movie, You've Got Mail, by a hair. Mm -hmm. Then Sleepless in Seattle. Mm -hmm. Then This Is My Life. Wow. Third. Then Julie and Julia. But those are, those are a tight four, I will say. Sure. Sure. I think those are four capital G great movies that she made. That's, that's the canon, right? Then sure. I go Michael, the most interesting failure to me. One that that half works. Then I go lucky numbers because I am a maniac and I deserve to be in jail. <laughs> okay. Then mixed nuts. And bewitched is the one I find almost no pleasure in. Yeah, bewitched oh, yeah. is uh, an automatic bottom to me as well. Number yeah. eight for sure. My list is similar to yours with a couple swaps. Yes, number one for me is sleepless in Seattle. Number two is you've got mail. Number three is Julie and Julia, which I would not have predicted beforehand. Number four yep. is This Is My Life, but agree, obviously. 
those are the, you know, unambiguous top four. Then I also would have Michael, then Mixed Nuts, Lucky Numbers, Bewitched. Yeah, look, look. Pretty similar. Yeah. Pretty similar. Now, should we talk next miniseries? Yep. Uh, Sorry, yes. Let's talk about the next miniseries. Yes. So, uh, Zemeckis. Robert Zemeckis. He won March Madness. He made many movies. He's on our schedule, obviously. Yes. So many movies. That's a lot of movies. I think our longest miniseries ever. Or if not, within spitting distance. I think Demi it might Burton. be the longest. Or spitting distance of Damian Burton. Yeah, I can't. I'd have to count them up. I gotta say, I'm thankful that the witches got pushed back because it just shortens the miniseries by one. Yeah, right. We thought it would be out by the time we'd have to cover it, but um, we decided to slip in a little surprise. Do a little, a little four movie miniseries. What will now be the shortest miniseries we covered a filmmaker who you and i love have talked about a lot both on and off the podcast has a oh, new yeah. movie coming out and it felt like a good way to sync that up in the way we often try to do so our next miniseries starting next week no palate cleanser no palate cleanser because yeah. we had to do some finagling to make this fit in the schedule and still make sure that we talk the walk in 2020 it was an absolute priority that to. the walk gets talked within this calendar year e- yes also we initially planned for palate cleansers to be things like tenet and wonder woman 18- 1984 right and look what happened to those uh, hashtag uh, uh movies are over party uh sure. movie theaters are over party how dare um, you so starting next week we're doing a mini series on gina prince bythewood yeah Love and Basketball, Secret Life of Bees, Beyond the Lights, and her new Netflix film, The, the Old Guard, which kind of represents so hard. her long overdue blank check, which David has seen, yep. I have not seen yet, which I'm very jealous of. I'm very excited to see I, it. I have seen it. I have interviewed her. And I, when interviewing her, jealous, it was jealous, even jealous, more kind of clear. Like she's, I was, you know, because I'm asking her about career and she's like, I have been trying to make an action movie for so yes. goddamn long. Like, you know, and this it really is the reason does, we really wanted yeah. to do this series because it feels like such a culmination of a thing that's been in the works in her career for so long, a director who's been slept on for so long. Yeah, I agree. Absolutely. Beyond right. the Lights is a masterpiece. Beyond the Lights is well, a masterpiece. I mean, Beyond the Lights is a very early Griffin Newman David Sims date as well. Let's not that's forget. That's another Griffin. reason it, she's sort of been in our craw for a while. And I was rewatching Love and Basketball for the first time in a while and texting you about how good it is. And you and I just went like, fuck it, let's do it. Let's, let's slide it in there. David's most yeah. electrifying activity, rearranging the spreadsheet. Nothing gets him more turned than getting to rearrange the spreadsheet. And we did the math and we slotted her in there. And so that's coming up next. And then after that, once again, no palate cleanser. We go straight into Zemeckis with I Want to Hold Your Hand. So essentially, the rest of August, you're going to get the Gina Prince movies, and then September starts Zemeckis. Uh, that's right. And we will be covering uh, Disappearing Acts, her uh, TV film, on the Patreon as well. Yes. In August. Um, yeah, no, it's very exciting. I feel like uh, we've done an episode so far, and it was extremely enjoyable. You know, for everyone crying out for a Ben's choice, there's one on the schedule in January 2021 that's a doozy. And there's so, one after that. We have two on the don't schedule. Don't worry right about now. it. We have, yeah, a, we have another right. one scheduled a little later in 2020. That's right. Yeah. 
Uh, I'm excited to. I'm so I'm so fucking excited to rewatch Beyond the Lights, uh, the sexiest, most romantic movie ever made. Hmm. <laughs> uh, I am also excited. Beyond the Lights rules. It's gonna be we're halfway right. We're more than halfway through this year. Not great, but bad, for, bad year. Bad year. For wait, you think? Episode. Wait, Ben. Wait, come on. <laughs> Lay off well, 2020. It's trying I'm, its I know best. I'm gonna be negative. I know I can be negative sometimes. Like you call me Mr. Positive, but honestly, yeah. that's sort of sarcastic. <laughs> I'm kind of negative sometimes. Well, and this is not good. But looking at this sketch for the rest of Twan Twan. Feeling yeah. okay about it. <laughs> Good movies. <laughs> and I'll say this. We we tentatively have our schedule for the first half of 2021. Because we, we, as I said, David likes to fill out this presentation. We, we like to sort of see how things would look. And looking at like this year of the podcast, it feels really exciting to me in terms of the, the amount of different stuff we get to cover. The zigs and the zags and all of that. And I feel like as the show has gone on, sometimes I see people marginally criticize us for being like, are they moving away from the premise? You know, is, are all these directors like truly conventional blank check directors? Why aren't they just covering all the most obvious people? Why are they avoiding David Fincher and stuff? And it's because as the show has grown and our platform has grown, the thing that feels the most exciting to me, and I feel like David, you feel the same way, is being able to be like, if we cover this director, then we're asking people to engage with their filmography more seriously in a way that right. people are automatically mm. doing with PTA or Fincher. Sure. We're making our listeners go through them and watch their underseen movies and think Look, about We're not the making body anyone do career. anything. They can do whatever they want, but it's, it's, an invitation. Uh, it's fun to do. It's an invitation. Yes. Exactly. And it's like the best thing was watching people, much like us, discover this is my life and go like, holy shit. This thing honks. Why has no one ever talked about this? You know? And it's also just great that my uh, my word honks to describe something being good is just, just, you know, taking off so well and people are talking about it more and more. Yes. It is funny. Someone posted, I forget which movie it was, but one of the recent Blank Check movies on uh, Amazon Prime, it might have even been like Mission Impossible 1, the algorithm of viewers right. also watched was right. six also watched, entirely like, disparate yeah. movies that are only linked by us also covering them. Like it was hey like man. viewers all watch Mission Impossible. This is my life. Uh, crazy Mama. <laughs> like it was the weirdest grouping. But it's exciting. We're in, to we're in the see. we're in the code. You know, we're in the algorithm. We're in the code. We've broken the internet, much like Ralph. We've broken the internet. Right. Anyway, now all the business. We should have is Ralph done. on the show. Let's get him We're on. To book him. That it, would rule. His man. people never respond. Um, <sighs> I know, and it's like upsetting. It's really, honestly. it's really hard to send emails to a power strip. That's the I issue. Know. Yeah, you're right. But I think there's one final item of business we have to settle before this episode can be done. And Ben, you almost set it up perfectly. We like uh, to call you Mr. Positive, but another thing yeah. we like to do is give you a new nickname at the end okay. of every mini-series. And we often forget to do this. That's true. True. So I think we need to settle one, and Romley would like your opinion as well, for okay. what we can name Ben out of the Nora Ephron canon. Do you I have mean, them loaded up, Griff? When Harry Met Sally, This Is My Life, Sleepless in Seattle, Mix Nuts, Michael, You've Got Mail, no, Hanging I, Up, yeah. A Witch, Tool, and Julia. I, I haven't seen any suggestions. What are you talking about? For one, Kevin made a famous suggestion that was great. Yeah. What? You know, Ben, ben and women can't be friends. 
Oh fuck. I forgot about that. How do you that. forget about that? Come on. That was that was amazing. Then maybe that's just it. Well, it's good, but here's there's there's a Reddit thread. Okay. So Ben Ben, are you talking about this or do you want to hear well, no, some of the- I just wanted to weigh in that I don't think what Kevin came up with. I think it was funny in the context of the episode. I don't think we right. need to carry on that phrase. Uh, yes, it's that's why I figured into Osama bin Hosley territory for you yes, where you disagree with I the messaging. Do not Thank like God we didn't do that. To, Jesus. to not accept. <laughs> we almost forced Ben to have the nickname Osama bin Hosley because of uh <laughs> Zero Dark Thirty Romilly. And Ben That's protested. a rough one, Ben. No, it's I'm not sorry. good. <laughs> yeah. I thank you. I had to really fight them on that for whatever reason. Um, here are some other suggestions. Ben Hosley met Sally. <laughs> Funny. Ben Hosley That's pretty good. I like um, that. It's got the oh, right Ben what she's Hosley. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, this Ooh. is my Ben. <laughs> I mean, I do um, find myself saying that a lot. You've got Ben. Uh, Hosburn, Hosing Up, Lucky Numbens. Um, what else? We got? Wow, <laughs> these are good. The Ben around the corner. I, I oh think boy, I like Ben Hosley met Sally. Yeah, Ben, dot, ben dot, Hosley dot. met Sally is great, and it's nice to have another dot 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 in there along with save yeah. anything. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty good. <laughs> All, right, All right, well, then it's been decided. Great <laughs> gavel. I want us to get so many nicknames that at a certain point we have to do a Patreon episode that's just you reading the nicknames and it's an hour long. That's the goal. People ask that's why the, right, the, the nicknames aren't in most episodes and it's because we also have to do ads in most episodes. Yeah. Right. It was one or the other. They were ending up around the same length of <laughs> right. time. Right. We needed 10 minutes somewhere. Yeah. Right. Three ads versus 87 <laughs> nicknames. <laughs> Well, Romilly, thank you so much for being on the show. And as thank much as it you feels guys. hypocritical, do you want to plug your social media now at the end of this episode? <laughs> you know, I actually, I, um, the only social media platform I'm now on is Instagram. Mm. Killing it on the grams. I deleted my Twitter. Smart. Sure. Um, I'm trying to reduce my screen time. Um, since the, pandemic has started i'm up to 10 hours a day uh which is horrific mm-hmm. uh i'm not posting anything right now but my instagram is food by romilly i also have a website called romilynewman.com which has some recipes on it and now would be a really good time for me to update it so stay tuned for that hey now and hey now. uh Let's also say that you you have sort of pivoted to your uh, your Instagram being more teaching people how to cook, like we're talking about. Less taking pictures of good dishes and more really trying to share your love of dishes with people. Yes, I've tried to get back, and I will continue to do so in the future, to my original vibe. Um, just, you know, like cooking for the love of cooking and trying mm-hmm. to teach people things that I'm excited about or I'm geeky about or whatever it may be. And so that is going to be my new uh, path. And we here at Blank Check are trying to get back to the love and basketball. Next yeah. week. Um, thank you all for listening. Please remember to rate, review, subscribe. Thanks to Andrew Gudo for co-producing the show. Rachel Jacobs for editing and help. 
Lane Montgomery for our theme song. Joe Bowen, Pat Reynolds for our artwork. Go to blankies.reddit.com for some real nerdy shit. And patreon.com backslash blank check uh, for blank check special features where we're doing Mission Impossible commentaries. And as David said, uh, an upcoming episode on uh, Disappearing Axe, the Gina Prince Bythewood film. And yes. as always... Producer Ben, producer Ben, the Ben Deucer, the Poet Laureate, the Meat Lover, the Tiebreaker, the Fart Detective, our finest film critic, the Peeper, Birthday Benny, Hello Fennel, not Professor Crispy. He no. is not Professor Crispy. He is the fuck master. Yes. He's Dirt Bike Benny. He's White Hot Benny. He's Soaking Wet Benny. He's the Haas. He's Mr. Positive. He's Mr. Hositive. He's right. a close personal friend of Dan Lewis. He's the voice of reason. He's Santa Haas. He's the commissioner. The com- oh right the commish yeah, the commish for short and he's graduated to certain titles at the end of each miniseries this includes Chrissy Ben Kenobi Kylo Ben Ben Knight Shyamalan Ben Sage Save Anything dot 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 Ailey Bands with a dollar sign War Haas Perduer Bane Ben 19 The Fennel Maker Robo Haas Benglish Mr. Ben Credible Eat Drink Ben Haas Lee Beetle Vape Juice The Hazel Day Public Benemies Hasaka of the Ditch of nice. the Jersey okay and also what Stop making bends. Sure. And also, we never came up with a George Miller one. Oh, whatever. Haas pig in the city. Boom. And finally, <laughs> Ben Hosley met Sally dot dot dot. We did it. All right. Thanks for all those names and many more to come. <laughs>